Just King Things is a podcast where we read the books of Stephen King in publication order. As these are largely horror novels, they often deal with complicated and disturbing topics. A list of content warnings is available in the episode description. friends and neighbors. Welcome back to Just King Things, the show where we read and talk about the books of Stephen King in publication order. I'm Michael, and with me is my co-host, Cameron. I'm on a raft. (laughs) Yeah, you having fun? Remember all my summer memories out here? Yeah, I'm shouting shouting to you from from the shoreline here. On my feet! Ow! (laughs) Ow, my feet! What's happening to your feet? Raft my Cameron. feet hurt. Ow! A goop! Oh no, not the goop. A goop has got my feet! A goop has got my feet! Not Ow. the goop! Oh no, a gout of blood! But, but. <laughs> All my blood coming out of my body! But, but, but. <laughs> well, R.I.P. Raft Cameron. But. Uh, today we're talking about Skeleton Crew from 1985, Stephen King's second short story collection. I gotta say this, Mm -hmm. uh, the cover of my version of this book is bad. I think every cover of every version of this particular book is bad, but tell me about yours. I like the one with the big monkey on it. Do you have the classic one with the big scary monkey? Uh, I have like the signet, like... 90s 2000s edition that has the monkey on it but not like the big classic monkey with the green eyes this is a a different monkey with red eyes Mm, yeah i like the classic monkey i mean it's not it's not like objectively good but Mm -hmm. it's it has an 80s vibe to it it does apparently the hardcover has has uh like the death card on it animated have you seen that this is the uk hardcover hold on let me show you uh, you'll you'll see what I mean. It's like coming up out of the two D image. Hold on, let me. I'm going to show it to you. This is what everyone's listening for. Mm-hmm. This is for me to slowly screen cap something. There you go. Look at that. That's pretty good. Oh wow. That is actually that's much cooler than. Uh, I mean, I'm going to be honest. I hate the monkey cover. I uh, look. I like a little mischievous evil monkey. I'm I, okay with that. I have always, even when I was a kid uh, and like just starting to read Stephen King, I remember seeing the copy of Skeleton Crew sitting on the shelf in the local library. And I remember like not picking that book up because I found the the malevolent monkey cover just like so corny and cheesy. And I was just like, I don't I don't know what's going on in this thing, but I am not a fan. Wow. Mm hmm. Well, then you could have read it and had the same feelings. Whoa! Whoa. Hey! Whoa. Yo! Come got him! Yeah. Take that, Steve. <laughs> My ma told me that one. Mm-hmm. The, uh... <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I You know, I didn't have a... Uh, that that severe of a reaction to it. I you know, I, I think maybe I grew up in uh, a monkey-obsessed culture. <laughs> 
and uh, you know, an evil monkey obsessed culture. Mm-hmm. I think I probably read this somewhere around the time of seeing a play of the monkey's paw, okay. which consequently is probably where I found that I don't like live theatrical productions. Mm. Um, when they resurrected uh, that corpse, I just didn't. I was like, I don't. This isn't a video game. I could be home playing Final Fantasy VIII right now. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm seeing a Victorian guy raise his son from the dead. That happened at the very beginning of Final Fantasy VIII. He gets hit in the face and then immediately wakes up in the infirmary. That's raising from the dead at that age. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, so I wasn't, uh, you know, uh, uh, super jazzed about the monkey's paw. I know everyone's worried about that. And then I must have read this like sometime really short, you know, soon to, soon after that. So it was a, it was a time of monkeys. Dunstan checks in, of course, was running around mm-hmm. uh, as a, a mighty Joe. What, what was the thing with the big, the, the big, uh, oh, I, you know what? I'm thinking Operation Dumbo Drop. Yeah. I was going to say mighty Joe Young, I think, was a couple years later. Yeah. 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 But uh, Operation Dumbo Drop, of course. Mm hmm. About an elephant, mm-hmm. unrelated to anything I'm talking about. I'm just saying there were a lot of weird animal things going on at that, you know, in the 90s. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think I was just accepting that there would be a monkey on the cover of the thing. <laughs> I just, <laughs> oh yeah, monkey. Uh, uh, wh- where did you read this in your uh, uh, King ability? I so would have read this definitely once once I really got started. Um, I would, I almost certainly almost only read this because of people on the Stephen King listservs that I refer to frequently. Um, Oh, wow. uh, Yeah, like I was not interested in this book just in general, but like everyone on the Stephen King listservs, they love the mist. Like the mist is constantly getting talked up there. And I'm like, well, I want I I everyone everyone on this, you know, listserv really likes the mist and they all really like Stephen King and I really like Stephen King and I'm on this listserv. So I got to I got to see what the mist is all about. So eventually, um, probably maybe two years, maybe less than that, maybe a little bit more than that into my Stephen King journey is when I finally pick up skeleton crew from the library, you know, swallow my pride and take home the ugly monkey and uh, read through this thing. And have very few actual memories of a lot of it, uh, which is interesting because, uh, I mean, to give a little preview of of what I'm going to have to say on the rest of this episode, this is a fascinating collection to me because I think that this has legit some of the best stuff Stephen King has ever written in it and also some of the worst stuff Stephen King has ever written in it. Yeah, you know, I had a similar, I I think this might be, if it wasn't the first thing, I know I've said this a few times, right? Because I don't know what my like first five are, but I have like a general sense of what they are. Um, If this was not the very first thing I read, it has to be extremely close. Mm -hmm. Um, Because I know where I got it. I got it from my aunt, uh, who had like several Stephen King books. She had, the, I think, the hardcover with the monkey on it. Uh, and she had it, and I read, like, a couple short stories out of it, just kind of at random, because I was reading a lot of short stories. I think I've talked about this before, but uh, Bruce Coville's, like, uh, collections, did you read those as a kid? Uh, that sounds familiar. It, Bruce Coville's, like, a, you know, a children's author, uh-huh. uh, or, like, a young adult, I guess we would call, like, like a tween's book. Um, so he wrote, uh, hold on. 
Oh, my teacher is an alien. Yep, I read all yeah. these. Yeah, yeah, my teacher is an alien. So I read a bunch of those, like when I was a kid in the nineties. Um, and but then he was doing, and so based on that, based on being like, oh, you know, and I read the Magic Shop as well, like these other books. Uh, and so based on those, which are like these, you know, uh, early reader books, I guess maybe is the best, uh, you know, term for them, but they're like all in genre, mm-hmm. right? There's like, he's like, got fantasy series, got kind of science fiction series, but then there were these Bruce Coville's book of blank and it's like Bo- Bruce Coville's book of monsters, Bruce Coville's book of aliens, Bruce Coville's book of ghosts, Bruce Coville's book of nightmares, <laughs> Bruce Coville's book of spine tinglers, right? You could tell mm-hmm. they were running out of stuff and then they just started numbering them. Bruce Coville's book of aliens too. Bruce Coville's <laughs> book of ghosts too. I never got that far, but I did read these like book of monsters, aliens, ghosts, like some of these, and they were pretty interesting. And even now, I think they were pretty interesting because they were. Uh, I think for the most part, um, uh, unless someone can correct me and tell me I'm wrong, they were edited volumes that were kind of pulled from the history of um, science fiction, fantasy, horror, whatever, mm-hmm. right? So they weren't like they weren't his anthology, which is how I think I purchased them. Was like, oh, it's more of this guy's stuff. But it was really just an edited volume, and they were all kind of like the science fiction ones were all like Ray Bradbury, mm-hmm. um, you know, mm-hmm. like that kind of uh, a young reader could read these. A couple of them were just the short stories that uh, so like Richard Matheson short stories that Twilight Zone episodes have been based on. Oh yeah. Um, so there were some of those. So that was probably my first introduction you know, uh, probably in like the fourth grade, the fifth grade, somewhere in there, uh, to like genre, you mm-hmm. know, in a big way. I'd read like The Lord of the Rings before that and The Hobbit and stuff. But this was the first of like, hey, do you know if you just want to read about monsters, you can read all the monsters you want. And there have been people <laughs> writing for hundreds of years about monsters. Um, and so based on that, for whatever reason, you know, I, like we've talked about a million times on the show, Stephen King is in the mix there, right? Mm-hmm. And so out of that, I think I was like, at my aunt's house and saw she had a Stephen King book and I picked it up and I'm pretty sure it was Skeleton Key. Skeleton Crew. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, yeah, so then I read it and I think I read The Mist first. I either read The Mist first or Beach World. Um, one of those two. Mm-hmm. And I guess if you're going to like pick some early stuff for, uh, you know, someone in like the fifth grade to read about Stephen King, those are pretty good. Yeah. Uh, and we'll talk about why, because I I really do think that the, uh, you know, I say this quite often on the show, but the method of the show really paying off here. Oh, yeah. <laughs> because I think that if you look at this book in a vacuum, and I think a lot of people do, I think a lot of people pick this up as their first King book. I see people recommend it all the time. I think Patrick Klepek did this recently, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think this book is good. I think I'm, I'm much higher on it than you are. Um, but... Uh, if you look at this book in a vacuum, you think it you might think it is doing one thing, that it's emblematic of certain things. But if you look at it in sequence, I think that we think that it's doing something different. It is emblematic of different things. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's pretty interesting that the show has really provided me a context where I think like you, I read many of these stories and went, ah, again? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or, wow, this is creep show too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, and it did become Creepshow 2, right? Don't two of these stories show up in Creepshow 2, the film? Uh, just the raft, I think. 
Oh, there's not another one? No. For some reason, I thought... I thought the the monkey also did, too. But maybe no. I'm not. Oh, that's its own movie. Well, no, it's not. Uh, there is a George Romero-produced film, I think, maybe directed, called Monkey Shines or something right. like that. That very famously has also, like, an evil-looking symbol monkey on its cover. Um, on, like, the VHS art. Uh, but they are not at all related. In fact, what is... Well, actually, that we would spoil it. The monkey does kind of get adapted, but into an X-Files episode. <laughs> cool. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, okay, well, I guess we could just start doing the thing, and we can talk more about that as we as we get to the thing. But, uh, yeah, big broad strokes. This was a big and informative one for me, and it's been really enlightening to like go back and check it out. Yeah. Because I've got a different feeling about it now. Uh, so this is another short story collection episode. Uh, the last one we did was Night Shift. We're going to follow that format, uh, which is different from the regular format. Um, how this is going to work is Cameron and I are going to take turns. We're going to alternate through the stories, uh, giving a kind of brief uh, one-sentence summary. That doesn't actually have to be one sentence, but just a brief summary. Uh, we will then name a kind of king thing about that story. Uh, and then we're going to give an opinion on whether or not that story is good. Now, when we uh, agree... Um, then there's maybe not going to be much more to say, although we might like work through one big difference between this collection and Night Shift is that even uh, on stories where I think we might end up in agreement, there might be something we want to talk through because in general, the stories here are much meatier than what was going on in Night Shift. Uh, there's um, if if the keyword for Night Shift uh, in most of its stories was kind of like EC horror comics, right? Or like Tales from the Crypt. There's a little bit of that in, in some of these stories. And in fact, some of the stories date from that time period and they just weren't collected in uh, Night Shift. Uh, but then uh, the sort of emerging, like there, there are a couple of emerging themes across these stories that I think are worth talking about. And then uh, maybe the closest genre pull uh, aside from the EC horror comics here is actually the Twilight Zone. There's a lot there's a, there's much more of a social dimension, I would say, to to all of these stories that are in, and it's interesting to talk about. Um, anyhow, uh, we will either agree or disagree uh, on the ones where we disagree. We'll have a more extended discussion at the end as kind of a death match to figure out, you know, why do we disagree or sort of, you know, what's our, our various takes on it. Um, but that's what we're going to do. And because these stories, as I said, are meatier, we are not going to do kind of the normal closing segments. Uh, any sort of like Kingiverse stuff we'll probably just point out in the discussion as we go through. And we're just not going to do a mixtape because that I, this is already going to be probably a, a pretty lengthy episode. Nothing compared to next month, though. Stay tuned to the end to find out what that means. <gasps> you could probably guess. Anyway. <laughs> oh wait wrong theme wrong thing uh yeah it... i wish that uh in in the same way that i uh purchased a clown's horn mm -hmm. for uh dramatic effect for a different show i should have purchased some symbols <laughs> for <this> one. <laughs> oh great <laughs> the famous just king thing symbol boom Mm -hmm. Oh, well, I guess let's get started then. Uh, I got the first story, uh, which is The Mist. Uh, what is that about? What's The Mist about? Well, 
After a freakish storm brings a strange mist to a lakeside main town, a father fights to save his son and the other people trapped with them in the local supermarket as alien creatures prowl outside. Uh, a king thing here, uh, a, a sort of like standby king thing, is a wingnut religious lady who uh, eventually decides that like the only way, like that the, the the monsters outside are basically like creatures from hell, and this is all God's judgment, and the way to turn everything back is to start doing human sacrifice, and she wants to sacrifice like uh, the main character's son, um, and that that's you know tried and true king thing. However, I want to point out that there is also an emergent king thing in this story, and I want to point it out because it's one of the things that I think really defines this collection, uh, mm-hmm. and really shows a kind of I think shift in King's thinking about himself and his work and kind of what he's up to. Uh, Can I predict it? One moment. Okay. Can I predict okay. it? Okay. People's jugulars being severed, spraying blood everywhere. That is exactly right. Uh, Steve is really into the the mid-80s jugular phenomenon, and he's going to talk that up as as much as he can. No, it's the divide between uh, real Mainers and summer people. People who live in Maine year-round, live in these little vacation towns year-round, versus people who come up from, say, Boston uh, and summer there. so uh, that, that that's a thing that shows up in a lot of these stories, the idea of being from a place versus being a visitor to a place. And uh, that's interesting to me. And we'll talk about it. Um, the, the other King thing here, right, that, that that's tied into that is uh, writers reflecting <laughs> successful creatives. Uh huh. Having something happen to him. Yes. Yeah, this is kind of our... The the main character of this story is very clearly uh, modeled off of... Um, oh, God, what's his name? Wyeth. Uh, uh, what's the youngest Wyeth's name? Do you know who I'm talking about? No. Like Andrew Wyeth, but there's a child? Yes. So Andrew Wyeth uh, is a famous American painter, or was. He's passed right. away. His father was N.C. Wyeth. Christina's World. Yes. Uh, Christina's World for uh, Andrew Wyeth, if you know that. Mm-hmm. Andrew Wyeth, yeah. Uh, Christina's World is one of his most famous paint- paintings. Um, he is actually the son of N.C. Wyeth, who was a famous uh, American illustrator. He illustrated like a, a legendary uh, copy of um, Treasure Island. Um, mm. And, oh, it's his... Uh, so uh, Andrew Wyeth's uh, son is Jamie Wyeth, who is also a contemporary fine arts painter. And he does really interesting work. Actually, I really like Jamie Wyeth's work. He does like uh, these very like photorealistic uh, paintings of people with like pumpkins for heads and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, anyhow, the the main character of The Mist is so clearly based on like Jamie Wyeth because he's the he's like the third uh, member of a painting of an American painting dynasty. I never would have pulled that, but that, but that does. Yeah, uh, he's doing these portraits of Andy Warhol. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, God, the thing in The Mist about. Uh, when he talks about his greatest work about the soup cans uh-huh. <laughs> and they're like that's pretty great I want to buy that to sell the soup cans he's like oh my god <laughs> I'm a commercial artist yep. <laughs> alright Steve uh, yeah the, the meta reflections I would say start getting pretty thin mm-hmm. um, once half of your characters start becoming uh, major creatives who have huge success and are afraid that they aren't hit, like tapping into the old art anymore. Uh huh. It, it becomes hard to not read that biographically, and we probably shouldn't in all instances, right? 
created characters are created characters, and we should think of that in context, but we also have to think about them in the context in which they are produced. Mm-hmm. And good God. Uh, so uh, is this the final point, unless you have something else to add here? No. Okay. Uh, is this story any good? No. I I can't believe this. I know. We've been talking about this for a month now. Mm-hmm. I can't believe you don't think this is good. <laughs> it's it's killing me. Well, we'll have more to say in the end. I, I might have uh, gamed the rules here a little bit to give us time to discuss some more of a story that I think people really want us to talk about. But mm-hmm. I, I am not being disingenuous in that uh, I am not that impressed with this story. Not in the way that many people are. But we'll talk about mm-hmm. that in, in the death match at the end. Mm-hmm. You know who's going to win. All right. Second story. I'm okay being a I've martyr. Got the, I've got the public on my side. <laughs> uh, the uh, Here There Be Tigers is the second story. Uh, a little kid goes to the bathroom and discovers a tiger who then eats his mean teacher. <laughs> uh, king thing. I don't know. I have no idea what the king, mean teacher. Um, transparent uh, riff on Bradbury. Oh, right. Oh, what is the Bradbury story here? Uh, the Velt about the the nursery oh, where the uh, kids right. like generate VR lions that eat their parents. Right. Right. <laughs> uh, there, there's another uh, Bradbury story that's even closer to this too, though. Um, but yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyway, that's really what happens. Is it good? No, it's terrible. This is a terrible <laughs> story, and uh, it's. It is the biggest whiplash on the planet Earth to read The Mist and then read this. No matter if you like The Mist or not. Uh, just like the what's going on here. This is like written from the POV of a little kid. Mm-hmm. And he finds a tiger that murders his teeth. There's nothing more to it. Yeah. It could be one sentence. <laughs> I agree. The, the, the story is not good. Uh huh. Agreed. Uh, story number three is The Monkey. Uh, a man and his sons are tormented by a wind-up monkey toy whose clashing symbols bring death to those nearby, which the man learned when he himself was but a boy. Uh, the king thing here, I think, is probably, and it's actually another kind of watchword for this collection, but kind of generational trauma, and particularly kind of like the relationships between fathers and sons. Uh, there's, there's a strong sense in this story of like the father, like they, they go back to like, the old uh, house where he lived, uh, they find a carton of stuff that his uh, dad, who disappeared from the picture when he was a kid, um, kept like a whole bunch of things. Uh, interestingly, right, uh, uh, again, we, sh- we should be careful with like, you know, uh, created characters versus like biography and real people. But like this is from King's biography uh, talking about he and his mm-hmm. brother digging through his father, his father who left them when they were both uh, very small. Um, digging through uh, some stuff that his dad had left in like a garage or like a barn. And this was actually how they found out that um, King's father was he tried to write some stories, uh, tried to submit them to like pulp magazines. This is also where Mm -hmm. King discovered uh, his first H.P. Lovecraft books. They were his father's old uh, editions. Um, But in this story, what happens is they discover this evil monkey that kills people. 
Um, and uh, also the father is uh, the father character is a merchant marine. And it's kind of suggested that this is like a, a weird thing that he's picked up in his his travels about the world, you know, uh, but also right. King's father who disappeared was a merchant marine. So mm-hmm. um, anyway. A lot of a lot of stuff happening there. Uh, also, I said that this does get adapted. Uh, this basically becomes an episode of the X Files uh, called Chinga about an evil just like China doll. Uh, but it has the same ending where to get rid of the monkey slash evil doll, they just go out to the middle of a lake and drop it, and then it kills all the fish. Hmm. Yeah, he just like repurposes basically the the entire sort of setup uh, for his X Files episode. Um, is this story any good? No, this story is like self-parody. Like if you wanted to have <laughs> it is. right, like it is it is like the most like when people say the Stephen King story is like about a haunted lamp or whatever, they are talking about something like the monkey where this this evil toy shows up for basically no reason, uh does a thing and then they get rid of it or not. Yeah, the pivot point for like Stephen King fame to me like it's becoming so clear as we as we work through the 80s in particular right because at this point you know he's Stephen King you know his name is bigger than the title and uh what's so interesting to me is that you know the things we associate with King like the haunted location the haunted object you know the the thing that is irrationally just like doing things to human beings in a direct horror kind of way right we've talked a lot before about how Stephen King has moved through genres and modes, right? Mm-hmm. Like, he, he did a lot of science fiction work at the beginning, and that has mostly gone away, which actually makes the science fiction stories in this collection feel really out of place mm-hmm. in some ways, mm-hmm. um, including The Mist. You know, The Mist is a science fiction story, uh, and he goes out of his way to make it one <laughs> uh, when it doesn't have to be, and, uh, and I think that's quite interesting. But but here, you know, this is... If Pet's Cemetery, I think, demarcates the beginning of a pivot point this is the completion of the pivot point Mm -hmm. of stephen king writes a type of horror story uh about the irrational that is at its core and maybe this pivot starts in creep show but at at its core is an ec comics thing Mm -hmm. Uh, i think that like this this story is doing so much to add stephen kingian bourgeois novel interiority to an EC Comics thing. Mm-hmm. Like the entire, this entire story could be f- three paragraphs. Yes. Uh, the, you know, there was a monkey that I had when I was a child. It killed people. It just, I got rid of it. It came back. It killed more people. I tried to get rid of it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Like it's not, and weirdly enough, it's the crate. If you, if oh, you remember yeah. the crate from mm-hmm. Creepshow, right? It is the crate. I discover a crate. It kills people. I, I try to deal with the crate. It kills more people. I dump it in a lake. Mm-hmm. It's the same story. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I, although there's a little bit of like a gleeful, um, you know, whatever going on in that story of getting rid of your evil wife or whatever. Mm-hmm. But, um, but, but the thing that is like developed here, the thing that does, that makes it more than the crate is that this story is just full of interior dialogue and monologue from this character being like, ah, oh, this is all wrapped up in my dad feelings, uh-huh. and and my wife is a particular kind of way, and my children are a particular kind of way, and I want to make sure that I maintain them and don't let anything happen to them, right? There's all of this 
uh, you know, um, like like we've talked about through many Stephen King novels, the stapling of the bourgeois novel onto the genre form, mm-hmm. you know, the kind of plotty kind of uh, plot first genre form. Um, but it's that genre form is even thinner in this story it, to, to the point where the bourgeois novel stuff uh, doesn't fill it out any, right? Like it's this, these characters who are getting internal monologues to develop them are no more two-dimensional after you read the monologue than they were before. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like the perfunctory, you know, internal monologue, which is wild mm-hmm. to think about. Um, but but I think that this is like, you know, if we can talk about a solidification of, a, of like you're saying, of a public perception of King, here it is. I mean, I think the one-two punch of The Monkey and Stephen King presents Maximum Overdrive, <laughs> basically at the, in the same year. This is 85, right? Yeah. Um, that, that double punch, I think is like that. This is his legacy. Mm -hmm. Uh, this little monkey thing and trucks that kill you. (laughs) We'll see more. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I don't think this story is good, but I think it's fun. Yeah. Like, like on a basic level, do I enjoy reading this story? No. Uh, do I enjoy the absurdity of this story and how much Stephen King is like treading water to make it go to be more than three paragraphs? Definitely. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, great. Mm. All right, next one, I guess. Mm -hmm. Kane rose up. Um, Perfectionist student gets a bad grade and becomes a school shooter. Uh, King thing. Perfectionist student (laughs) gets a bad grade and becomes a school shooter. Uh, But no, like uh, the, the kid who was okay... Right, mm-hmm. uh, who looked to be good was hiding a de- an evil secret. Yeah, right. So this is like another swing at pupil. It's in some ways another swing at uh, rage. Um, it's it, is it any good? No. Yeah, it's not good. It feels a little bit. Um, uh, uh, oh gosh, the Texas Tower sniper. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, I'm blanking on blanking on his name, but but is that around this time? Is that the late seventies, early eighties? Uh, it might be. Um, I think uh, uh, just uh, Charles Whitman. Yeah. Uh, the thing that I want to add is that sixty six, nineteen sixty six okay. is when Charles Whitman uh, was at the University of Texas and yeah. then shot people from the top of the tower. Okay. Well, mm-hmm. that seems I don't. So <clears throat> that may that may be right because. Uh, this is actually a midpoint between Rage and Apt Pupil, uh, because Rage was written during King's senior uh, year of high school. Mm-hmm. Uh, Apt Pupil was written, you know, sometime kind of after he's kind of made his name, um, sort of around the same time that he's writing The Shining, because I've already pointed out there's some there's some interesting things about like Apt Pupil that are actually latent in the play that Jack is working on in The Shining. Anyhow, Cain mm-hmm. uh, rose up. Um, can you imagine this was originally published in Ubris, which was uh, the University of Maine's literary magazine. So Steve published this story about a college school shooter in his college's literary magazine. Incidentally, also where I think Here There Be Tigers was first published. Um, but yeah, like, oof, oof. I, y- yeah. <laughs> Uh-huh. Jesus. <laughs> Just would really would really work out differently today, let's say. Yeah, I don't think I don't think that would happen. But uh yeah, uh the the story is 
uh, not particularly good. It feels like a first riff at a uh, Bachman book, which yep. makes a lot of sense given the chronology that you're you're doing, right? Mm-hmm. It's like a Bachman book that has nowhere to go. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of these stories have a kind of air about them of like, a thing happened. Yeah. <laughs> like, that's it. Mm-hmm. Which is interesting compared to uh, uh, the graveyard shift, uh, night shift, <laughs> uh, to night shift, right? Which is which they they are all like very traditional genre short stories. Mm-hmm. You know, they have like a beginning, a middle, and an end. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, you know, I, I guess the short story is always what happened, but here it's like often many of these stories are an event, mm-hmm. and then you know, not a lot of lead up or and. Uh, travel out mm-hmm. but uh yeah yeah uh next one uh mrs todd's shortcut a couple of castle rock old timers reflect on the disappearance of a woman they once knew the titular mrs todd who was known for taking shortcuts whenever she could and somehow covering more mileage than her car's odometer showed uh there's a whole bunch of King things here. Uh, one of the primary ones is what I mentioned in the summary, that this is a Castle Rock story. And in fact, uh, the monkey is also a Castle Rock story. The other thing that is happening throughout this collection is that Castle Rock is really getting filled in. There are multiple mm-hmm. Castle Rock stories uh, in this collection. Um, uh, but is this uh, is this the story where they mention Bannerman's dog killing? Yes. Killing someone, I, I really like that line in here. I'll see if I can pull it up as you're mm-hmm. as you're talking about this. Um, so an- another sort of very kingy thing is uh, slightly different worlds. We've talked about this before. Uh, I think particularly in like the Long Walk. Uh, but there's a so uh, Mrs. Todd uh, drives around in her car. She's always going help for leather. And she's always taken shortcuts. And one of the uh, the narrator of the story, and this is actually another thing about this collection that that recurs often, is that this is a story about someone telling a story. Uh, this happens multiple times mm-hmm. in this collection. It appears to be a device that King got really interested in or focused on at this point. Um, but sort of the it's these two guys and the story is in the frame about them talking and then one of them starts telling the story that is actually the story that that you're here for which is about this woman and her shortcuts uh and he ends up taking a ride with her and one of the things he notices is that when she takes uh she she like turns onto roads that he thinks shouldn't be there uh you know like uh routes he doesn't remember seeing on any maps or that he's never heard of and there's like at one point he mentions um i think seeing a sign that calls the road a motorway rather than a highway Mm -hmm. uh which is, you know, just like that's the that's the British English uh, word. And he's like, well, that's weird uh, because it turns out that Mrs. Todd is like taking these shortcuts through uh, some other. It's like the, the the dynamic that we saw in The Talisman, where when Jack flips over to the territories, he can walk, you know, a mile and then he flips back to the real world and he's moved like 30 miles or something. Right. Um, it's that kind of thing. Uh, did you find that line? I did not, for whatever reason. Mm. Uh, I didn't. I don't think I marked it. Yeah. Is the problem? Uh, um. Anyway, uh, those are those are some king things that are going on here. And is this story any good? I think that this is one of the finest short stories Stephen King has ever written. I was going to say the exact same thing. Mm-hmm. I I think this is the best story in this book. Mm-hmm. No question in my mind. And I think this might be one of his best short stories. It is so good. It is. It's deeply impressive in a way that I, you know, I would just, you know, assert 
uh, he might not have been able to tap into at this point based on the rest of this book. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. No, there's like a, uh, the way that he, he has uh, the way that that frame works of the two characters and the one starts telling the story that moves so smoothly. And the, uh, the narr like the interior narrator's voice is so strong and particular, uh, and there, there's so much kind of wistfulness and emotion to it, even though this is like a, uh, sort of creepy fantasy story at its heart. There's a lot of like Arthur Machen, I think I can detect in the background here. Um, mm -hmm. but, uh, and there's actually, it's weird. It's like this mixture of Arthur Machen and Eudora Welty, uh, who wrote, uh, a whole bunch of things, but, um, she had a, a bunch of short stories Welty did, uh, where she they're southern gothic short stories but they're kind of retellings of greek myths so it's like normal southern gothic stuff is happening but like the characters are all kind of like they take on this kind of larger than life uh sort of aspect in like their interactions and in kind of like what they perceive to be the stakes of their interactions and then kind of what the effective stakes of those things are among everyone um mm -hmm. And there is like a particular moment in here where Mrs. Todd is or not particular moment. There's multiple moments where Mrs. Todd is compared to like the, the goddess Diana. Yeah. Um, so and then she's taking on the characteristics of Diana, yes. like the, the, the shortcut itself is doing something. Mm -hmm. I mean, the, the flip of this story, too. Right. Uh, this is a story that if it were a mocking story or if it were like a Lovecraft or any of the Lovecraftiana kind of stuff, mm -hmm. uh, Mrs. Todd would be the protagonist. Mm -hmm. Right. Like. The, the brilliance of the story narratively is that it is a traditional kind of New England horror supernatural tale told by someone else who ha was a bit character in it. Yes. Right. Um, you know, b because all of that kind of, um, you know, from Lovecraft to uh, all of that kind of like New England weird, I guess. Uh, and I guess a lot of the weird in a general sense is often about a person who is not from a place discovering a secret of the place. Mm -hmm. uh, and sometimes it's about a person who is from a place discovering a secret they didn't know. Mm -hmm. Right? Um, they were someone who thought they were in on it and then they found something even deeper down below. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and that, cause that's what happens here. Right. It is precisely because she is a summer person. Yes. Uh, that she has access to this place that the, uh, you know, highly focalized narrative character doesn't, or narrating character doesn't, mm -hmm. or secondary narrator, right? It's a story within the story, as you were saying. I did find that quotation. So um, some are people, because I, I got it wrong. I was looking for the wrong thing. Summer people like the Todds are nowhere near as interesting to the year-round residents of small-town main towns as they themselves believe. Year-round folk prefer their own love stories and hate stories and scandals and rumors of scandal. When that textile fellow from Amesbury shot himself, Estonia Corbridge found that a week after, or after a week or so, she couldn't even get invited to lunch on her story of how she found him with the pistol still in one stiffening hand. But folks are still not done talking about Joe Camber, who got killed by his own dog. <laughs> like, I, I, every paragraph in the story is like that. Mm -hmm. I, he's just on the fucking thing. Yeah. <laughs> like, Steve has just tapped into the, the thing here. Uh, if you want to learn how to write a short story, this is how this is a class in how to do that. Mm -hmm. If you can mimic this well, you could be a good short story writer, I think. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, but also, again, as you were talking about summer people versus town people. Yep. Uh, that's that's the whole thing here. I really like the thing for it. It has this kind of air of uh, 
I don't know, in 20, in, in the year that we were recording this, right, in the era that we were recording this, this would have, like, a bunch of lore attached to it. Yeah. And people would want, like, more of the Toddiverse. Yeah. And I'm sure they did at the time. I'm sure people were like, I want to learn more about Mrs. Todd. <laughs> but I don't want to learn any more about Mrs. Todd. I think we get the perfect amount of information. And there's all of this kind of, like, yearning involved, you know, with, with this older man. He gets invited mm-hmm. to go with her, and he, he just can't do it, mm-hmm. right? He can't. Uh, until the end, and the end is recycled from Rita Hayworth and the Shawshank Redemption. Yes. <laughs> right, so he's figured out how to fold all of these other, like, non-fantastical things into the fantastical here, too, um, that, that's showing up in short story form. And then we're going to start seeing show up in novel form, mm-hmm. too, a lot more, mm-hmm. more than it already has. Good stuff. It's great stuff. All right. We ready for the next one? Oh, oh yes. It's a big famous one. It's the jaunt. Uh, one sentence summary. It's a science fiction story. One sentence summary. <laughs> That's uh, it. That's the, the one sentence summary. It's a science fiction story. The end. Next story. <laughs> uh, King thing. There's people in it. Any good? Eh. Okay. <laughs> Next one. No, uh, it's the jaunt. Um, uh, one sentence summary here. A, a family does a teleportation travel experience. And they learn all about the history of time to, or of of uh, teleportation. And one kid uh, goes against the advice of his father, and gets turned into a little gremlin. <laughs> the end. Okay. <laughs> um. <laughs> the uh, the king thing here is that uh, people misremember it. Oh yes. People misremember it as having other stuff in it than it does, and it's better than in their memory than it is in real life. That's the king thing here, actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, and is it any good? Nah, it's fine. Yeah. I wouldn't say this is good. This was, up until rereading this, this was probably one of my favorite Stephen King short stories. It would have held, like, it and Mrs. Todd's shortcuts would have been flipped yes. in my mind, mm-hmm. right? Mrs. Todd's shortcut, oh, that's fine, whatever. Uh, about yearning in a car? Eh, whatever. <laughs> But uh, uh, the jaunt, oh, high tier stuff. But because the the jaunt takes, uh, you know, it is similarly a story within a story. Mm-hmm. It's about uh, you know this uh, family. They're gonna get. They're getting in the teleporting. Um, I don't know platform room. It's a room that teleports you from Earth to Mars. They're going to Mars, right? Uh, and it's set up as a very traditional science fiction story. And the father, who is the you know the the POV character, narrates to his kids to like keep them calm or whatever. Hey, here's the history of teleportation, and so we get these kind of like pings back and forth into this like science fiction explanatory ap- apparatus to explanatory apparatus in order to um, you know deliver the story. And I think it's a lot like the stand, where uh, the the cool part has blown up in people's memories to such an extent that it overwhelms the perfectly mediocre story that is around it. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is specifically the history of teleportation stuff. Mm-hmm. When you're talking about, like, the guy who teleports his fingers across the room. Yeah. Uh, like, that's cool. Uh, that And then the, uh, you know, the experiments on prisoners and all of that, that, that has this very um, kind of, like, piece by piece, here's what's happening in the history of the thing, and it, it, it uh, escalates in an appropriate way. Um, but you, I, I think reading it now, especially in sequence with a bunch of other Stephen King novels, this is like, uh, this shit is mid, uh-huh. Michael. Yep. 
like absolutely agree. Like I like when I read this and realized like I had kind of a similar experience to you, which is that I remembered this story being like three pages long. It is so much longer than that, longer than you think. Um, it's long, it's way longer than you think. And it's to the whole thing's detriment. Uh, like formally, like just to step outside and be a total craftsman about this. The story's just a mess. Like what you're talking about with like the the moving between uh, kind of the science fiction far future frame, which reads like mm-hmm. King kind of doing a Bradbury riff again it, it it definitely is because this was meant to go into a straight up science fiction journal i think it was meant for omni original which is like a hard science fiction mm. thing uh, he says in the notes at the end that ben bova actually gave him some more like hard sf ideas like uh the entire long talking about like it kind of being a mess yeah the uh long digression about having to mine for water yeah and oil not mattering anymore like uh he says in the notes that that's all from ben bova oh. Yeah. yeah, so uh, there's this like very tortured like narrative thing going on where we have this extreme. And if you've never read Bradbury, this feels very much like Bradbury in that it is like the corniest future imaginable, like G whiz, <laughs> like rocket ship future. And uh, it's like all set up uh, over this past that we get narrated through kind of not, it's not the father really telling the story like it actually breaks and we get like basically an inset flashback to the dude inventing the jaunt technology in like this dystopian version of the late 1980s where like the gas crisis has never ended. Um, and it become and like that sort of like grittier and more down to earth and it's all about kind of like the political machinations and like what the government's going to do to this guy once they get their hands on the jaunt technology uh and it's it's like two different stories about the same thing that are happening sort of simultaneously intercut they don't really work together they don't feel like they go together uh and then the ending of the little boy like having uh you know held his breath and so he didn't get the the knockout gas that puts you to sleep through the jaunt um because the the if you haven't read the story and have no interest in doing it uh if you go through the jaunt awake then you come out the side really uh unhinged and then you very quickly die uh and it turns out that that is because the temporal experience uh like Despite the fact that the jaunt is instantaneous, right, it's teleportation, uh, the conscious experience of going through the jaunt uh, is, uh, as one of the people who ends up having to do this says, uh, forever, right? It's it's like, uh, uh, it's actually, this is another King thing, it's exactly the uh, vision of hell that uh, King described in that interview you read in the previous episode about, uh, mm-hmm. like, the interminability of hell. Um, so... Uh, it ends with like a real banger of that line, you know, long jaunt dad longer than you think as the kid is like clawing out his own eyes. Uh, but it takes so long to get there uh, and just it's unfortunate, I guess. Uh, also, if if all you have to do is hold your breath, like, come on. <laughs> Like, I'm not going to say that, that like a, a corporate entity is not going to, uh, you know, basically not take very good care of the people who are using its services. But if if all it takes is for like one mischievous little boy to hold his breath when the knockout gas comes to have a, a huge jaunt problem. Come on. All right. Michael presents cinema sins, li- literature sins. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, right. 
uh, it is a uh, structural issue here. I mean, honestly, that's not my problem. My problem with it is it's very boring. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, more than the one, the one, you know, era yeah. or er- error. I'm, error. I'm just saying if like if I were in a creative writing class with Steve and I got this draft, I would. This is this is what I would say. I just think that this story is is bad. And, and, and he, w- he would stand up bravely and tell you, you don't understand literature and literature is for the common man. Yeah. And and he would gaze off into the distance bravely, explaining to you what a genre is, mm-hmm. and then he would over-explain the history of science fiction to <laughs> you somehow, but also not really know it very well. <laughs> oh. uh, no, but yeah, I think this is uh, you know it, the method reveals lots of things, as I've said, and I think what the method reveals around the jaunt for me is it's just not very good. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I don't think King is particularly good at this kind of thing no. at this point. Yeah. Uh completely different genre, uh The Wedding Gig. Mhm. This is uh this was originally published in Eller- Ellery Queen's Mystery Magazine. So, uh it's it's a dipping a little bit into crime, Steve. A white jazz musician relates the story of the time he and his band played a mob wedding that ended in disaster, but resulted in the forlorn bride becoming one of the most renowned lady gangsters of the Prohibition era. The King thing here, uh, there's actually kind of like two weirdly interrelated things. There is all sorts of weird race stuff in in this uh, yes. race and ethnicity it surely stuff. Is. And a, it, it has uh, uh, the central pillar of fat phobia because the, the forlorn mob bride is a fat woman and her body is described and mocked uh, repeatedly and constantly. And this is a great source of like shame for her. And then she overcomes it all to become one of the most feared and ruthless gangsters of the 1920s. Yeah. Oh, and maybe that's the thing that's worth saying. Uh, Any story in this book that could have any information about someone's body, there's someone in there who is extremely fat and Steve's going to let you know about Mm -hmm. it. Right, that's also like plot critical to the mist mm-hmm, as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but yeah, we we are really getting. I you know, and this is also the time in Steve's life as we have learned from thinner, where his doctor was like, "Hey, buddy, you've gained a little bit of weight. You should think about that." And it seems like that is, uh, you know, becoming a focus too of many of his works written in the eighties period. But mm-hmm. it's pretty pretty weird stuff. Uh, uh yeah. Do you think this is any good? No. Uh, like it's, it's, it's a weird story because I can see like the bones of a better story here, but it's another one of those things where I finish it and I'm like, what the hell was the point of that? Uh, cause how it ends, this is so weird. Um, like, so like, as I said, the, 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 the race and ethnicity stuff, because, uh, this, this follows on from thinner in that we've got a, a whole lot of like different, uh, ethnicities of people who are all talking about and or to each other or themselves, um, mm-hmm. with like slurs, uh, uh, there's a huge amount of like weird white guilt uh-huh. about, uh, Jim Crow. Yeah. So this is, so there's like one, a uh, black member of the jazz band that the narrator is in mm-hmm. and he, and like the narrator like feels really bad basically about <laughs> like not doing more for that guy. Um, and uh, it's sort of weirdly threaded into like the fat phobia stuff. Here's how the story ends. Um, 
Uh, I've never been able to get her, that is the the bride, out of my mind, or the agonized hangdog way Skole had looked that first night when he talked about her, but I cannot feel too sorry for her looking back. Fat people can always stop eating. Guys like Billy Boy Williams, that's the uh, uh, black member of the, the jazz band, can only stop breathing. I still don't see any way I could have helped either of them, but I do feel sort of bad every now and then, probably just because I've gotten a lot older and don't sleep as well as I did when I was a kid. That's all it is, isn't it? Isn't it? And like, that's how the story ends. (laughs) Hey, uh, a thing happened. You know? Like, (laughs) that's it. A thing happened. Meanwhile, the narrator has white guilt and also, I don't know exactly what you would call, like, feeling guilty about this woman being fat, but... I don't, I don't know. Um, yeah, he's got a lot of... Uh, one One gets a sense, right, th- that uh, King was trying to do the kind of thing where it's like, you know, the A-pot and the B-plot, like, very classic short story mm-hmm. writing. There's mm-hmm. an A-pot and a B-plot in the way that they kind of... Uh, interleave together in the way they cross over is like the epiphany, epiphany moment, yeah. right? Where you're like, oh my gosh, these two things inform one another. And I think this is a common way that short stories are taught as a way to, you know, uh, how to write short stories. Um, uh, I, like I've been part of short story workshops where this exact method has been talked through, right? Like what are what is this kind of crossing point between two seemingly disparate things that informs both? And uh, I think the issue is that that King understands this is like what the literary short story looks like, but I don't think he has a good sense of like when narratives can mutually inform one another. Yeah. Um, I just don't think he cares about that. He's very not good at it, mm-hmm. <laughs> like historically. And that's fine. I don't think he needs to be. And I don't think that these like methods are universal, certainly not in the way that they are often talked about. Um, I think he's fine on his own. But what he's trying to do is like, like a pulp crime story that is informed by like a white liberal imagination of how race works in the United States uh, talked about, you know, uh, uh, like eating the story of a fictional black man. Right. And those things just can't, he can't sink the shot here. Right. Mm-hmm. He can't get these two things interleaved in exactly the right way. So what you end up with is this weird kind of thing where he's like, racism's bad, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> that guy didn't get a lot of opportunity. Yeah. And also I, she did though. So I guess that's okay. Like, I, I just don't think that the story can muster up, a, like, a lesson at the end, and so it's just done. Yeah. And it, and it poses the question to the reader. It's like, okay, you do it now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you figure that out, buddy. Buster. You figure out uh, sexism and racism in 1920s America. Good luck. <laughs> I just don't. You know, I and, uh, like, that's not even a specific criticism. It's just that, like, I don't think that that King has the tools to speak to the problem he wants to. Mm-hmm. And that's okay. I, I mean, it's, it's, it makes for a bad story. It, it makes for a story that was not interesting to read in any way. But it's like, I, I, I guess I admire the fact that he tried. But ultimately, he just can't do it. Like, his approach to writing does not uh, does not achieve what Toni Morrison is yeah. doing, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, obviously, that is true. But when we think about, like, writers who were perfectly good... Uh, or you know, or, you know the the gold standard of doing this maneuver of what is the mutually reinforcing what we would call now like you know intersectional, mm-hmm. um, but you know the the mutually enforcing set of oppressions or social circumstances that then produces in the reader an epiphanic moment where you're like oh my gosh, 
Like, of course these things are attached to one another, right? Mm-hmm. Um, Tony Morrison is someone who does that perfectly. And and, think, and this is Steve King trying to, trying to do that, <laughs> trying to do that kind of story. And it just, I don't know. He, he doesn't have the tool belt mm-hmm. for that one. Mm-hmm. Uh, paranoid, a chance. <laughs> The, uh, this is terrible, and we don't even have to talk about it. <laughs> like, it just uh, do you have things to say about this? It is a story, or it is a poem, mm-hmm. a chant, yeah, that is about someone who is paranoid. Yep, it is. I think by all metrics, bad. Yep, it's 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 not good. The king thing is that he has written poetry, and it's bad. Yeah, <laughs> much like the other poem in this. <laughs> collection which is bad you're you're jacking my swagger here i'm so sorry that's the one i get to talk about well well you might like it i don't know it could be one way debate it we'll see (laughs) yeah i mean that's that's it right like it it is it's what it says on the tin it's like what if what if uh a poem was from the perspective of a person who was paranoid Mm -hmm. and and that's it like no story they're just paranoid yeah, uh, like a, it's like a tone poem about being paranoid. Yeah. Uh, again, a thing that that uh, King's tool belt does not allow him to address appropriately. I think. Yeah, uh, the raft. A group of college students head off to a lake for an off-season swim, where they are trapped and killed one by one by a malevolent black goop lurking in the water. Uh, the king thing here is uh, the kind of like weird but like in jokey banter between the two male leads whose names I don't remember. But it's basically like uh, these two guys who are college students and they're like roommates. And then they have these two girls that they know. And, uh, you know, they're they're heading off for the swim. Um, the fun, interesting like backstory here is that King wrote this story, a draft of it, and I don't know when he wrote it, like relative to say uh, Jaws coming out. Um, mm. But it's it's the opening scene of Jaws, uh, basically in its way, where it's like, "Hey, we're we're young people, let's go have fun on the beach." Uh oh, something's eating us. Uh, mm-hmm. But uh, King wrote this story, uh, sold it to a men's magazine as he you know did at the time. Uh, and then lost the original draft that he typed up. Uh, the, and also, I think, never found a copy of the magazine in which the story supposedly appeared, though he did get paid for it. Yeah, the the note in the back, said, uh, you know, explicitly says, because these all have, like, little notes. And he's like, if you have a copy of this, will you please mail it to me? Yeah. <laughs> it's like the weird, like, this this person is a multimillionaire at this <laughs> point from writing novels by the mid-80s. And he's made multiple films, right? All this stuff. He's like, "If you can, can you help me? Can you help me find my magazine? <laughs> and he... I'm Steven. <laughs> so this version, then, as he explains in that note, uh, is rewritten, basically, from memory. And I, I think it's really interesting for that reason. You can, um, on the one hand, it feels like a night shift short story and how it's kind of like short EC comics group gruesome but it's also got a kind of uh psychological outlook to it or like a feel for character uh that is not characteristic of the stories of that time period right it it, it, you can really Mm -hmm. feel like uh sort of older and newer king like coming together here um and so his two male leads have this you know sort of recurring in joke where they're constantly referring to each other as um like pancho villa or something uh, it's it's like a very steep like they're doing they're doing like ethnic accents and stuff it's very stephen mm-hmm. king um 
because this is also how like yeah they're doing a bit yeah. they got a bit they yeah do. right they have this bit right uh something we've seen in like uh uh the body and we're going to see again in it mm-hmm. um but uh yeah so they have that is the story any good yep this is pretty good the story's great i uh this is another one i was after reading the jaunt I was scared. I was like, "Oh my gosh, this is this is what if the raft is also bad?" Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's not. It's really good. Uh, you know, this is also kind of a re- a rerun or another version of the relationship between uh, the two main characters and Christine mm-hmm. too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right? You know, kind of kind of jock guy, and then his like nerdy friend. Except the nerdy friend is the POV character here, yeah. right? And the his nerdy friend, it is precisely his like. You know, in the same way that Christine the car makes him like kind of do things that are, I don't know, outside of his comfort zone in sometimes in a positive way, right? You know, talking to the girl, mm-hmm. um, but also uh, irrational, right? Like he, do, he, there's no logic for why he is attracted to that car as much as he is. He just is, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's no logic for why they go out to the raft. You know, it's such a bad idea, except like teen hormones, yes, right? Mm-hmm. Like he just wants to impress the girl. Um, and so there is like exactly like you're saying, there's a um, depth of character here, even in the lightly drawn nature of like a short story that uh, I think the way you put it is exactly correct. This is old King and new King together. I think there is, you know, when we when we talked about the narrative style of like the body kind of getting in Shawshank Redemption, getting folded into King's work in the early 80s and really kind of changing the character of some of that, you know, I don't think that much of Jack in the talisman makes sense without the body. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. I, I think those uh, one really informs the other. Um, uh, I think that those things really inform this rewrite of the raft, which w- was originally the float. Mm-hmm. Uh, let, let me read you the little thing about the float here. Um, and, I, and I have another uh, question for you. So this is from the notes at the end of the book. I really like reading Stephen King's notes at the end of these short story mm-hmm. books about like, where where did the stories come from? And they're always really short, but very helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and especially for me when I was a kid, reading these to be like, oh, like short stories come from somewhere. Right. Like a person has an idea and then they figure out how, like, how to put it together. And sometimes they're really quickly written um, and drawn here. But I, I really like that Stephen King did this. I really appreciated this uh, as a reader. And I still do. I like reading these as much as I like reading the stories. But this is what he said about finding the uh, issue. Anyway... If anyone out there has ever has ever seen The Float, or even if someone has a copy, could you send me a Xerox copy or something? Even a postcard confirming the fact that I'm not crazy. It would have been an Adam or Adam Quarterly, or, more, or most likely Adam Bedside Reader. Not much of a name, I know, but in those names, I only had, or in those days, I only had two pairs of pants and three pairs of underwear, and beggars can't be choosers, and it was a lot better than spanking lesbians, let me tell you. <laughs> Meaning spanking lesbians like the magazine. Yes, right? yes. No, Adam, this, these, are, these are all like... Uh, Steve's uh, alternative are, job, he was either going to be a short story writer or professional <laughs> lesbian spanker. <laughs> Oh, he's like wiping sweat off his brow like it's a long day at the laundromat. And he's like, oh, back. <laughs> Jesus Christ, uh, the version of the mangler that's about the evil lesbian spanking factory. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God, I've brought a, 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 a my my spanking apparatus. <laughs> Create a, a curse <laughs> spanking machine. Okay. Um, it, it's just like uh, the giant spanking machine is like out in the streets terrorizing the countryside. <laughs> oh, God. 
but this is why this is why I read this. Uh, I just like to make sure it was published someplace other than the Dead Zone. Uh. and that's a little that's a little bit of meta winking king. Ooh, I like ooh. that. I thought that was fun. Um, this is another place to talk about something too, really briefly. So the epigraph to this book, did you notice what it is? I did, but now I've forgotten because I finished it a while ago. Well, there's actually two. There's one from Casey and the Sunshine Band, yes. which I refuse to engage with. <laughs> so but weird. the other one is is Do You Love? Uh-huh. Which shows up constantly in this uh collection. Right? Yeah. Do you love that shows up here in the raft, because what happens is that this thing is eating them and it's eating them in a really grisly and disgusting way, right? It like snatches onto them and they can't get let go, which is also a set of images that are showing up in the mist. Mm-hmm. It's essentially a Shoggoth from Lovecraft. It's a it's, it's a big iridescent like slime that like dissolves and incorporates you. Mm-hmm. And but and the iridescence is a kind of like uh, lure, mm-hmm. and uh, every the the people when they look at it, they they have this like internal monologue of like good vibes, good feelings, you know, all these affects that are positive, and it kind of draws them in uh, and kills them. This has also got uh, some like uh, people in a desperate situation. The thing that they decide to do is have sex with one another, uh-huh. uh, which also shows up in yeah. the mist and is going to show up in King quite a bit over the years. Uh-huh. Um, we can we'll try to figure that out when it comes up later um but one of the the words that these images are associated with is do you love which also shows up in a bunch of these other stories what's going on with that i was gonna ask you because yeah it's just like recurring throughout this uh in multiple stories and it's not exactly clear where it's coming from or where it lands because it takes on different inflections or intonations depending on the story for instance in the raft uh uh, in the same way that there was in Christine, there's a kind of like light, like homosocial uh, thing between the two male characters. And like uh, part of some of the tension between them is like uh, these girls, there are two girls, but like any any one girl would like uh, kind of break their connection. But then there's also this like, uh, you know, w- who gets which girl and uh, all, all of this kind of like weird, like interpersonal uh, potential like romantic stuff that's happening. Um, mm-hmm. So here in, in the raft, uh, it ends up like all of this like gets funneled into the goop, right? The iridescent goop that uh in some way, like courts people with with the flashing iridescence, right? Like that's one of the ways that I think it gets talked about or sort of thought about is, uh, like you know, you know, come into the lake, lover, uh, kind of a, a you know, love and death uh, conjunction, very Freudian. Um, but in it, I don't know what's going on here. I don't know why this keeps coming up in these stories because, as I said, I'm not sure. Well, the last story, maybe does land somewhere with this, but it also feels very discontinuous with like how it shows up in these other stories. Uh, I just, th- oh, let me, let me, so is it called when you dance? Yeah. I just kept thinking of the new young song. When you dance, I can really love. Oh, <laughs> Ooh, baby. I can really love that thing. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I mean, I mean, they're not related whatsoever, other other than the fact that I kept thinking about it. But yeah, it's this refrain. Um, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Someone could do some good analysis of it, I guess. Anything else to say about the raft? No. Okay. Word processor of the gods. 
someone's G-Wiz nephew creates a word processor that can change reality. I Yep. Mm-hmm. This is, yet again, a... Uh, uh, before I talk about the King thing, this is another, like, the haunted thing uh-huh. story from King. Uh, because he can type stuff in and delete it, and it disappears from the world. Mm-hmm. And he can add things back in. And this is a story that's like... Uh, uh, you know, the boy who got everything he ever wanted. <laughs> mm-hmm. Like, it's a dude with, like, a bad kid, a bad wife, his life isn't good. And his, he gets shitty, this work- his shitty metalhead son, his <laughs> fat wife. Right? Like, here here are the king things as we list them off, right? Uh, his his deep desire to murder his wife. Mm-hmm. Which, for, for king, is like the universal human value. <laughs> if one is in the world, one is thrust into the world in, in the same way that we must imagine Sisyphus is happy, a man must desire to murder his wife. <laughs> Take that chain, Austin. Is <laughs> <laughs> in want of a murder of his wife. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, but yeah, right. So he's got all the stuff and he's got a word processor and it's pretty cool the way it works. You know, it's like buzzing and whatnot. But this is literally Stephen King sat down at a word processor and thought it would be cool to do this. Mm-hmm. I mean, it reads like a Twilight Zone story, yeah. oh, except wow. without the final move that a Twilight Zone story makes where like the consequences of this thing <laughs> rebound on the man in an unexpected way. And he gets like an ironic comeuppance for thinking he could play God. The end of this story is just like. Playing God is cool, <laughs> especially when you get a cool son and a better wife. Yeah, and he like closed the door and said goodbye. Um, yeah, yeah. I it's uh, no, it's not good. No, it's not. Um, I I there's something internal to it. There's a different way of writing the story that could be very cool. I think, which is that. The kid knew he was going to... So what, what happens is his nephew builds this machine and then his nephew dies. And so the machine is kind of given to the uncle who, who is our main character. And then eventually he uses it to resurrect that kid, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so there would be something cool. There's another way of swinging at the story that's like, that kid was a super genius and knew he was going to die and created a mechanism to resurrect himself. Mm-hmm. That could be cool. That's, yeah. not, that's not in the story. <laughs> it's, some, it's some Andrew Hussey, rewrite this. Yes. With <laughs> with a time give me that time loop. Yeah. And it's only because of the uh the machine existing that the kid died to begin with. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh a man who wouldn't shake hands. Yeah. This is you. <clears throat> uh at the club featured in The Breathing Method from different seasons, an old man relates a story of meeting there in the club many years before a strange fellow whose handshake killed anyone he touched because it turned out he got cursed when the setup to thinner happened to him while he was in colonial India. The king thing, the yep. the backstory to thinner is just reproduced here uh, entirely, but with like uh, certain actors swapped out, right? Trading the travelers mm. for uh, this guy being a, a sort of like he's like a rope merchant or something in colonial India. And he ends up mm-hmm. uh, accidentally killing the son of someone he's trying to do business with. And then that guy curses him. And it's like any he, he makes him a, uh, a quote pariah dog uh, so that anyone who touches him dies. Uh, and then the man like gets upset because he uh, accidentally like he, he performs well in a poker game and this makes another guy unhappy. So he like forces a handshake because it's clear that the guy doesn't want to have his hand shook. Uh, and the guy ends up feeling so bad about this that he then kills himself by shaking his own hand. 
it's the best ending that you could come to for this story. <laughs> is it any good? No, no, not really. Like it's it's really a shame because I feel like there's so much uh uh material possible with this club uh that like but like Steve feels incapable of producing like the story that really like makes it all click together. Right. Uh, yeah, yeah, he, he, he wants this club to like work. Mm -hmm. Uh, cause now we've gone back to it. What? This is the third time. No, the second. Is there not another story in here that goes back to it? I don't think so. Oh, okay. Unless, I unless I, you caught something that I really missed. No, maybe not. Maybe I just made that up, but, mm -hmm. uh, this club is such a cool idea, you know, in mm -hmm. a general sense, it's neat. He he gives us a lot of like additional information about it, right? There's that going back to the thing of like, was it your grandfather? You know, who was the butler here or mm -hmm. whatever, right? Uh, uh yes, so of course there was my grandfather. It's like, oh, you still got that mole on your face. You know, there's all that kind of stuff. And I just kind of wish he'd write stories about that as opposed to. It's very funny that the watchword of this club is like, it's not about it's the teller. It's or you know, it's about the story, not the teller or something. Mm -hmm. It's the tale, not he who tells it. Right. I knew there was a better a better way that it was put in the story. And yet, it really is about he who tells it. Yeah. <laughs> and the place where they tell it, right? That's what, what he seems interested in. Because the stories he tells are not very interesting. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah. I Again, this is another, uh, you know, he is suffering from... I think most of these stories suffer from bloat. Uh -huh. I think that if they were the size of stories in um, Night Shift, all of these would be way better. Mm -hmm. Which is why the next story is great. Ad break. Ad break. Ad break. Hey, if you're listening to this, uh, you are listening to The Feed. That's cool. If you like this show, Just King Things will probably like a bunch of other stuff that we do too, such as Too Much Future, where we play through uh, the Fallout games and talk about them in a fun and fancy, fancy free way. Game Studies Study Buddies, where we talk about works of game studies and hopefully make them useful for people who maybe don't have academic degrees. Homestuck Made This World, which is a show where Michael is walking me through Homestuck uh, uh, bi-weekly and checking it out. We're, what, about the halfway mark of that at this point? Yep. Somewhere in mm -hmm. there? We're nearing the halfway point of Homestuck. Wow. And um, another show that I've forgotten, probably. Uh, if you can go to patreon.com slash range touch, I think you should. Uh, I think you should do that to support us. If you support us for any amount, it's super great. But at $5 a month, you get access to bonus episodes for this. This month's bonus episode is going to be a podcast that we recorded the day after we went to Colorado, um, to the Colorado, or to Opera Colorado, in order to listen to slash watch The Shining Opera, which was very exciting. It's only the second time it's ever been put on. And we did a lot of cool stuff and checked it out. And so we talked for about two hours, two and a half hours, something like that. Uh, about the experience of going and what it's like and the adaptation and how that happened. Uh, and it's pretty exciting. I, I think it's going to be a good episode that you'll probably want to check out. One week from today, there will be the release of the documentary that we filmed while we were out there. It's uh, about 45 minutes or so of us just hanging out in Colorado and talking about Stephen King stuff and doing things. And then we also went to the Stanley Hotel, which I am currently editing right now. So it's going to be really great. Uh, we also met a tour guide named Reagan, who we're going to interview at some point. We should probably talk about that, mm -hmm. Michael. Probably. Yeah. Uh, I have I have his phone number and his email address because <laughs> I thought it was important to get both uh -huh. for some reason. Yep. Um, and I texted him and emailed him, and he responded to both immediately, which is Reagan's very a great guy. 
shout out to Reagan. He's from Arkansas. Uh, if, if you're from Arkansas, you might know him. There can't be that many people who live there. But anyway, <laughs> patreon.com slash range touch. The link is down in the description below. Uh, and you can do that. And we would really appreciate it. It takes a lot of time to make the show. We're about to sit down and do like a solid 80 hours of reading to get through it. And if you think it is worth, uh, uh, you know, kicking a little money in, uh, to the, the pot in order to make sure that we can do that and to, uh, spend the time doing that, we would really appreciate it. Uh, the work we do on these shows is extensive and takes a lot of time, uh, to do the prep work and then do the thing and then read it. Here's a little bonus thing I want to say uh, that I forgot to say in the mainline episode is I have been going and purchasing books of critical writing about Stephen King from the 80s, which is where that really started catching on. Mm -hmm. And so I've got a little stack and I'm going to try to read the essays about the books as we go forward or at least review them in case we got some really cool stuff to talk about there. Um, and your, uh, your contributions on Patreon also go to some really cool stuff that, that we wouldn't be able to do without, uh, you know, money like the, the bonus bonus episode that you did, Michael, walking through the original draft of, uh, thinner Mm -hmm. and the original script of that, that we paid a little bit of money to, to, to buy more than, uh, we just had kicking around without the Patreon. Mm -hmm. And I have purchased the script for maximum overdrive. And I'm going to do a bonus bonus episode at some point over the summer here where I watch the movie and then look at the script. And then you and I can talk about the differences between those. Really looking forward to that. Which is very exciting. Me too. And, uh, well, I'll get into other details about that in that bonus bonus episode, but that's all to say that's what the Patreon does. If you're not currently supporting, think about doing that. Uh, other ways you can support the show really briefly, you can tweet about the show or Facebook about the show or just tell someone you think might enjoy it about it. We really appreciate that. We don't do any advertising and everything is word of mouth and it actually does move the numbers. Telling people that you like the show and that you enjoy listening to it and it's fun to listen to gets more listeners in and we really appreciate it for everyone who does that. And then I had another thing that I wanted to say that I have forgotten, but I can read a review really quickly. If you leave a five-star review on the for the show, we will read it on the show, or I will read a selection of one. I'm trying to do that right now, <laughs> and it won't pull up. Can you filibuster about uh, buying a t-shirt really quickly? Uh, and if you go to rangetouch.com slash shop, you will be pointed toward our uh, our store where you can get like t-shirts uh there's one that says do it for steve it's got a cool cartoon of steve on it and i wear it basically all the time uh you'll actually see me wearing it in the documentary uh you can also get the thumbnail art for this podcast on a shirt and there's a bunch of uh well not a bunch but uh several other shirts uh that tie into game study study buddies uh the other show that cameron uh mentioned and can i can i finish filibustering there's a print there's a just king things print uh uh, check that out. It's actually it was we did it. We commissioned it to commemorate like our first year of doing this show. And it's all of our favorite like characters from the first year of books that we read hanging out in front of the Overlook Hotel. Uh, mm-hmm. So, you know, it's neat. It's fun. It's a little personal thing from us to you. Here's a five star review from Meg and Mick G. Michael, the darling boy doing it for Steve and the world. A fantastic podcast that delves into the literary mechanisms and background content for Stephen King's work. Especially grateful for the intersectional point of view, which I wasn't expecting from two cis men. Parentheses, sorry. Close parentheses. Damn. <laughs> Can't wait to listen to this podcast for the next 10 years or however long it takes y'all. Well, it's not 10 years, but it's going to feel like yeah. it. Uh, if you like the show, 
get on any of your platform of choice. Leave us a five-star review. I'll check it out and read it on the show. Back to the episode. Tell us about Beach World. Beach World. Beach World is a straight-up science fiction story uh, in which uh, some people on a spaceship crash land on a desert planet. Um, Arrakis. <laughs> <laughs> where the planet itself is alive and uh, starts killing them. Mm-hmm. And uh, they they get rescued. They get rescued by a uh, like a, a salvage ship, mm-hmm. and he the captain's like pissed off because it's like, oh, this is like an imperial ship or whatever. We won't get any money for it. Why mm-hmm. do we bother doing this? And then he uh, is um, he he's like a torso on top of like tank tread bodies. He's yes. like a, he's like an armored core. Uh-huh. Uh huh. And uh, he's like you know eventually the planet starts attacking them and stuff. And there's this other guy who uh, is, like, eating sand at the end because he's the guy who, like, locks in with the planet immediately. He's like, I want to be a part of this. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, none of that was a one-sentence summary. But uh, it's just a bunch of cool science fiction vibes. I don't know if it's a great story mm-hmm. necessarily, um, but I really like it. I think it's good. King things in here, not a clue. <laughs> this is a pretty pretty big no. one-off. Uh, So... I also like this story, right? Uh, it, it's it's it is one of the stories that does not suffer from the bloat problem. Like it's got its mm-hmm. thing that it's doing and it does it. Great stuff. Uh, the king thing is the fact that in the far future science fiction world, after we've crashed on this desert planet, we are still listening to the Beach Boys. <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> Uh, thousands of years in the future. I guess the other king thing is that uh, it, it's it's a Ray Bradbury riff. Yes, it is. Because it really is, right? Mm-hmm. It, it's the same as whatever the story, like conceptually, not literally. But conceptually, it's it's formatted the same as the, uh, oh, the third Martian Chronicles story, maybe? The one about where they all go to, yeah. um, they, they go to Mars and- Mars is heaven. The, Maybe. Is that the one where the guy's killing the rest of them? Oh, no, maybe. No, no. Mars is Heaven is the one where they land on Mars and it's like their childhood hometown. Right. The uh, the Not this one. Uh-huh. Uh, there, there's another one in the Martian Chronicles that's right there. Uh, you know, like one yeah. of the early to mid ones that uh, they get there and then one of them like, quote unquote, goes native. Right. And that's oh, yeah. The world's mm-hmm. biggest quotation marks. But that is the image that's happening or, or the kind of... Um, uh, idea that's being evoked here and then he starts killing the rest of them mm-hmm. um and that's that's what's going on here right like yeah. one person who is he's not killing everyone but he is like fully absorbed he is at home in the alien world mm-hmm. um and is actively sabotaging uh any effort to leave and i love that when the spaceship comes down you know it blows glass everywhere because it's like all these thrusters or whatever mm-hmm. and then that starts being eaten because you know it seems like the planet is sand all the way through mm-hmm um, you know, there's nothing other than the sand. It's just cool. It's a cool mm-hmm. short story. Yeah. The Reaper's Image. A man investigates the reports of an antique mirror said to display a grim ghostly figure to certain doomed people who look into it. It does not end well for him. Uh, king thing here, like it's it's an evil object. Like what if there was an evil mirror and looking into it killed you? Uh, very, very bare bones setup. Uh, however, uh, is this story any good? I think so. I think it is uh, pretty good. Yeah. I think, because uh, this is the earliest one, right? Yeah, this is like his first professional sale. Mm-hmm. Yeah. God, I, I, 
jeez. I mean, for the, for that, it's extremely good. Yeah. Yeah, and it's, I mean, it's it's like, you know, the, the sort of more gothic horror version of Beach World to me, where it's just like, yep, this is a story that has an idea, it plays that idea out, and uh, I think it's got a, a really solid ending, right? Because what happens to the people who look into the mirror and see the Reaper, the figure, uh, is they don't just, like, die horribly. It's not like, you know, the monkey. Uh, they just straight up disappear. Like, no, they just, like, leave a room and then no one ever sees them again. And so there's, like, the guy who's, like, in charge of the museum where the mirror is kept, and then there's the dude who's investigating it. And he look, the dude who's investigating looks into the mirror, um, sees the Reaper, but does not, like, confirm or anything because he doesn't believe he's a skeptic mm-hmm. and then he he's goes like, oh there's a broken piece up in the top yeah it's like i can't believe they broke it when they moved it up to the attic mm-hmm. uh and so uh the the dude who's showing him the mirror is like oh no you've seen it you've seen it haven't you and the other guy's like no i just have to like he has to, he like leaves the room to like go to the bathroom or something and then the ending is like the 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 museum docent or whatever saying like and he he waited for the other guy to return he waited for quite a while. Yeah. There's something to me about the the artistry of the image, of the way that, that King draws the image here, like in the mind's eye, where because the the investigator or whatever, you know, the this person who's looking at the mirror, he he's like, there's a piece of tape in the right corner. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not it's it's not an image at all. It's this indeterminate thing. Yes. And, you know, it's not, it's, it's, it's not the Grim Reaper, right? It's not some sort of spooky creature. Um, it is just a, a flaw. Mm-hmm. And the flaw is like this thing. It kills you. Yeah, th- this is probably, uh, you know, when I, I distinctly remember this legitimately scaring me as a child. Because mm-hmm. it, it's really like, you know, just the, the openness to the imaginary here, mm-hmm. which is a thing that, that King stopped doing. You know, that's one thing we've talked about a lot over the course of the show is that when given the opportunity to explain, Stephen King will take the opportunity to explain. And it's when he doesn't that he's probably at his best, right? We talked about in Pet Cemetery, right? Like the inexplicable nature of some of that is what makes it work really well. And I think that King's turn to pure horror as opposed to science fiction or, you know, this horror fantasy, whatever, but like his horror works are... Totally irrational, unexplainable. Here's the thing that occurs. Yeah. And that, that to me, is the Reaper's image. Like, mm-hmm. you know, the perfect condensation uh, of that impulse in him and how he can really make it happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, tell me about Nona, Cameron. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Nona, okay. Uh, one sentence summary. Uh, a guy who is failing out of college meets a girl and due to some weird pheromone question mark manipulation becomes her like murder buddy mm-hmm. and does murders. Mm-hmm. I don't even remember how the story ends. She turns into I, a giant rat. Right. The end. <laughs> it's also like suggested that he may have hallucinated her, except there are definitely parts in the story where it is clear that like he did not. So. Yep. Uh, King thing, um, uh, it's not good. Uh, I don't, I don't, what is the King thing here, Michael? Do I feel like love? I'm getting these short stories where I have no idea what to do with them, <laughs> but, uh, yeah. What, what, what'd you say? Sorry. Oh, uh, this is one of the, do you love stories? 
Yes. Right. That's yeah. the question that Nona asks him. Nona is the name of the the girl who uh, leads him on this little murder spree throughout Castle Rock. Mm-hmm. Right. 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 Um, and I don't know if you want to like really stretch, go back to night shift. Uh, the college boy who has a rat problem is also the setup to, uh, you know, graveyard shift. You're right. The college, the college boy who had who left college, mm-hmm. who has a rat problem. Yeah. Yeah. It's not, this is the story is not good. This uh, no. I, I, it is like straight up treading water the whole time. The whole um, thing. Yeah, mm-hmm. I I really didn't like it. And reading it made me mad because it is so long. Yeah, it's really long. It's yeah. Um, uh, next uh, story is actually another poem. This is called for Owen. Uh, this is a poem about uh, King and his son uh, walking to school, and his son imagines a school populated entirely by anthropomorphic fruit. The King thing here, uh, this is father-son golden hour, right? This is this is uh, taking Gage through uh, the field like flying kites in Pet Cemetery. Um, is it any good? Uh, no, I don't think so. Like, just... I. Steve has not written a poem better than that one line from The Shining. <laughs> like, I, I don't know what to tell you. Like, he just... It's that not, one line? You mean, baby, can you dig your man? Yeah, from The Shining, yes. The famous line that uh, yeah, when yeah, Jack yeah. is stomping around. <laughs> saying, baby, baby, can you... can you dig your man? That would be so much better. He should go back and edit it like he did The Gunslinger. And he should put, baby, can you dig your man into The Shining. Uh, yeah, the Madoc... Yeah, are you here? Are you dreaming? Yeah. Did I tell you that? Oh, here, here's a here's a swerve. Uh, beep beep. Uh, here I am with the information train uh, that beeps and swerves. Mm-hmm. Uh, the uh, it's my fantastical world <laughs> where the train Cameron fantabulous train. Wow. Uh, <laughs> I'm wearing a big purple hat. Uh, the um. The 25th question mark, 20th anniversary, something of that, of the Shining miniseries just happened. Mm-hmm. Oh, yes. Fairly recently. I was listening to this. Continue. Oh, okay. Did you listen to this part about the when Stephen Weber explained Stephen King explaining that line to him? No, I haven't gotten through the episode yet. Um, okay. So, so yeah. there, there's an episode of Mick Garris's podcast. Mick Garris, please come on our show. People, please continue to tweet at Mick Garris to ask him to come on to Just King Things. I really want to talk to Mick Garris. I listen to every episode of his podcast. I, I I just want to be as good at interviewing as Mick Garris is, and I need the reps in on Mick Garris himself. Mm-hmm. People, please tweet at Mick Garris to, to ask him politely to come on our show. But he's interviewing Stephen Weber, and it's actually quite good. He's actually interviewing a few people um, from the production. Um, and uh, But uh, Stephen Weber, you know, he talks he talks a lot to Stephen Weber about like being Jack Torrance. And mm-hmm. Stephen Weber many times is like, ah, you know, it was a job. <laughs> like <laughs> yeah. uh he's very down to earth about it, which is very good. But he's talking about Stephen King being on set for part of the production where we have gone. In fact, the documentary about us going to the Shining, uh or to the Stanley Hotel, not to the Shining, <laughs> the Shining Hotel. <laughs> The Stanley Hotel where this we was We never-ending storied ourselves into The Shining. You won't believe That's, the results. You won't believe the things we forgot in, <laughs> in, the, uh, the, in the realm of dead hotels. But, uh, 
you'll be able to see that one week from today. Our Shining documentary will be coming out in one week. Mm-hmm. It's been. Uh, but uh, So check that out, and you'll get to see some of the locations that are in uh, the Shining miniseries. But, but to go back to why I actually brought this up, Stephen Weber says he was, while they were filming the thing, he was reading the sections of the Shining that it was about because they filmed the Shining miniseries in sequence. Uh-huh. Um, for the most part, I think there were the spring scenes that they had to do out of sequence, but everything in the hotel was in sequence, um, which they were very excited about. And so he would go back and he would read the section of the novel and he would come out and do it, uh, which is quite interesting to me. But so he got to the, like the Madoc line, right. That Mm -hmm. we talked about as being beautiful, wonderful Stephen King writing. And he went and asked Stephen King about it. And Stephen King was like, uh, you know, to hear of Stephen Weber, he tells a different way, but he's like, oh, yes, Madoc. Madoc's a wine that I was drinking, and I was drinking it a lot at the time, and, you know, the walls are running or whatever the thing. He's like, yes, I think I heard someone uh, uh, running down the hallway, <laughs> one of my kids, or whatever. My kid was, you know, like being loud or whatever, and I did that. But basically, Stephen Weber, like, tells the uh, tells the story to be like, Everything that you think of is like wonderful genius in Stephen King. To him, it's a very working class kind of workmanlike thing. Like mm-hmm. everything has an origin point. And none of it is mysterious. Yeah. Um, and there's something really funny to me about that. Um, <laughs> and uh, I would I say all that to say that that whole podcast is worth listening to. If you enjoyed our episode on the Shiny miniseries and you want to check out more about it, I, I really enjoyed that and hearing more about it. That is also where I found out the fact that um, Stephen King, because he got this deal you know, to do the shiny miniseries, he went to Brian De Palma before he went to, to Mick Garris and Mick Garris is unclear on whether Brian De Palma even responded to it or not. Mm -hmm. But, uh, uh, you know, just some more factoids in, in the King of verse here. Um, so for, for Owen, not very good. Mm, No. Yeah. Survivor type. Big classic. One of the ones people love from this collection um, a one sentence summary: a doctor, a former doctor, mm-hmm. who is smuggling heroin, crash lands on a desert island, and has to eat themselves to survive. Mm-hmm. Uh, King thing, Italians. Yep. um uh also this epistolary thing going on so it's it's told in kind of diary entries Mm -hmm. and it's told in diary entries in the same way that like a um like audio log or like a or a text log in a video game is told yeah this would be a walking simulator (laughs) yeah right where the last lines of the thing are like someone who is like oh my god not really able to write anymore and yet continues writing so you know we know what happened to this adapt this as a walking simulator where your uh, point of view gets shorter and shorter (laughs) the longer you play Um, and, uh, yeah, it's, uh, I think it's pretty good. You know, basically he ends up eating most of his body. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. uh, and that's like the horror of the thing. What will a person do? Um, you know, and, and he's on heroin the whole time too. I think it's pretty good. I like the story. I don't think this is like the be all end all of Stephen King short stories. Like it's sometimes talked about, but it's a fun story. That's like, it's purely going for the gross out. Yep. And it's, it's maximally silly, but like deviously silly Mm -hmm. yes uh like it could be shorter like i think it's got a little bit of bloat to it but uh some some stuff you might say could be cut uh (laughs) 
But Woo! yeah, it it's uh, it's Woo! got its idea and it runs for that idea. And it's also like King taking kind of another swing at the Janelli character in a different context. <laughs> yeah. What if Janelli did this stuff instead of being Janelli? Yeah. Um, which which is fine. Yeah, I think the story's cool. There's really not much to say about it mm-hmm. in a general sense. Uh, Uncle Otto's truck. <clears throat> a man from Castle Rock tells the strange tale of his Uncle Otto, a wealthy businessman who slowly lost his mind after crushing his business partner beneath his business partner's own truck, which seems thereafter to stalk Uncle Otto. Uh, King Thing, this is a story about an evil truck. I, I like this story a lot. I, I actually, so I like it too. I think, uh, the, the thing that keeps it from being really, really good for me is the fact at the end. So how this works, right, is that, uh, Uncle Otto, uh, ends up, <clears throat> living across the street from the truck because it's like this big old like lumber truck uh that's been put up on uh blocks or something mm-hmm. and how he killed his business partner is that he ha- he he did something where it's it's never quite confirmed no one really knew exactly what happened but it's believed or speculated that he got his business partner to come out uh in front of the truck and then somehow like pushed it down off the blocks and killed him mm-hmm. um And then he takes over sort of like all the land uh, and then he like builds another building across the road from it. Uh, And he like tries to donate it to the town as a schoolhouse. But this is in like the mid or late 60s after like schools have become consolidated and kids are being bussed into town. So like the the town, like the school board is like, "Uh, thank you, Mr. Otto. We just built a new school building for grades one through six. Uh, We don't really need this one room schoolhouse. Uh, And the guy like flips out and then he moves into that little shed. And that's where he spends the rest of his life with the narrator uh, and like his uh, father or mother. I can't remember which side the uncle comes from anyway, like basically like slowly losing his mind, but being tended to by his family, who's like bringing him groceries and stuff. And eventually the narrator discovers uh, that Uncle Otto thinks uh, that he's keeping an eye on the truck because he thinks that that truck is like getting closer and closer and closer, even though to anyone else, they just see this big red truck on blocks up in this field. But Uncle Otto keeps saying that it's getting closer. And uh, at the end, when Uncle Otto dies, the narrator goes to the house uh, and for a split second, it, he thinks that he sees the truck like right up. In, in front of the little shack where Uncle Otto lives. But then it's back across and it's fine. But then he goes in and he finds Uncle Otto's corpse and his mouth is filled with uh, uh, motor oil. Um, mm-hmm. But then also uh, a giant spark plug. And for some reason for me, it's the giant spark plug that really like, I understand why it has to be there because the way this story is told is the narrator starting out being like, I can't believe that this happened. And if I didn't have this thing on the desk in front of me, referring to as we eventually learn the spark plug itself, Mm -hmm. I wouldn't even believe it. Um, So I understand like the purpose that the spark plug serves uh, just like, but finding it in the guy's mouth for some reason, for some reason, the giant evil ghost truck filling him up with motor oil is more amenable to me than the idea that also for shits and giggles, the ghost truck plopped a spark plug into his mouth. Yeah, it's goofy. Yeah. Like just in its core. It's too, like it's one. I felt the exact same way. It's one step too goofy. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And it feels like, I don't know what it feels like. It feels like maybe Stephen King having no faith in his audience and being like, they're not going to get it if there's not a spark plug in there. Mm-hmm. That oil could come from anywhere. Yeah. Well, everyone in town is just like, oh, he killed himself by drinking oil, which right. is we- <laughs> similarly absurd. But but that's a better ending to the story, don't yeah. you think? Right. The better ending to the story is, well, did he? Right. Like, right. did this person completely, uh, you know, kind of imagine? Did is the narrator buying into his uncle's madness? Essentially, right. right? Mm-hmm. Um, that this hallucinogenic thing that, or you know, a, a hallucination. That's way better as a story that like the the physical proof literally hurts the story. Mm-hmm. That's true. That's another King thing, I think. <laughs> y- y- yes. Uh, <laughs> like, going one step too far. Um, you know, needing this... Uh, it feels like a problem with, like, editing and outlining, right? Mm-hmm. Like, it feels like that's an assumption or an assertion, or he thought that that initial uh, moment at the beginning of the story was so good that he had to pay it off somewhere, right? Yeah. But why not find the spark plug in the yard? Or why not find the spark plug, you know, on the ground? Mm-hmm. Um you know, it, and it could only go there. Does his uncle go and get it? Or maybe put it in his uncle's hand, right? right. I don't know. Um, I think the story is, I, I really like the way it, it's a it's a Castle Rocky story, I mm-hmm. think, in the sense that the context of the thing matters just as much as the plot elements. Mm-hmm. And, I you know, I don't know. It it has a Salem's Lottie kind of vibe mm-hmm. to it. It ha- and, and particularly it has a, uh, what was the... I keep wanting to say layer of the white worm. That's not it. What's the what's the the Salem's Lot story that's about the 19th century people? Uh, Jerusalem's Lot, right? Jerusalem's Lot itself. It's kind of like this weird melding of those two things, right? Like mm-hmm. the how did it? How did we get here? And then the payoff for the thing, which is like Salem's Lot itself, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's both of those things together. I I just think it's really good. I think it's a really neat story that that has a kind of a bad ending. Mm-hmm. But um, you know, welcome to Stephen King. Yeah. You know, this is something that's notable that's worth thinking about is that Stephen King has a reputation for having terrible endings to his novels. And for the most part, we haven't run into too many of those yet. No. You you know, mm-hmm. like that's something notable that the method of the show really brings out. Some have not been great, but mm-hmm. some have been really good. Mm-hmm. Like astonishing, like Cujo. Yeah. Astonishingly good. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, Pet Cemetery, pretty good. Mm-hmm. Christine, pretty good. Mm hmm. You know, like, I would say that his his endings at this point in his career, by the time we're at 1985, are no better or no worse than anyone else running in a genre space. Yeah. So something's going to happen <laughs> <laughs> to where he gets a reputation for having bad endings. And it's not going to be it, you know, like, which has a pretty, like, okay, cool. Yeah. They laugh at the baby until it disappears. <laughs> but uh, anyway, uh, other uh, Uncle Otto Struck stuff? Mm, no, not really. Okay. Morning deliveries. Milkman number one. Summary. The milkman delivers bad stuff instead of good stuff. (laughs) King thing. Doesn't make any sense and isn't good. (laughs) No. uh, I mean, the king thing is what what if the good thing was bad? Yeah. Right. Very flatly. This feels more like a poem than it does a story. It's so impressionistic and surreal. Yeah, yeah, because it literally is about the milkman shows up, he reads her order. For some people, he gives milk. Mm-hmm. To other people, he puts a tarantula in a bottle. Yeah, for some people, he's delivering toxic nerve gas. <laughs> yeah, right. 
uh, and he's got like a name. I forget his name's like Spike. Yeah, Spike mm-hmm. Effersley or something. <laughs> he's got some weird name, and uh, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, it's 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 like a poem. It doesn't really make a lot of sense and is not particularly interesting. Um, it's not it's not good. Yeah. It's good, I guess, as a prelude for the next story, kinda sort of. Sort of. You know, uh, what is the short story collection uh, where the road virus heads north? Is that Nightmares and Dreamscapes? No, that's Everything's Eventual. That's Everything's Eventual. It reminds me a lot of that story. Mm-hmm. It's got a similar vibe, yeah. Mm-hmm. Of like impressionistic, kind of surrealistic, here's a figure who does bad stuff. Yeah. Um, but it has no real connection to the world around them, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, so unless you have more to say about Milkman number one, I'll talk about Milk- I don't. I'll talk about Milkman number two, uh, mm-hmm. Big Wheels, A Tale of the Laundry Game. Uh, summary, some dirtbag dudes who work at an industrial laundry get their car worked on by a mechanic before the local milkman who stole one of the dirtbag's girlfriends previously runs them off the road and kills them and also goes home and helps the mechanic kill his wife. A uh, king thing here is yeah. um, the industrial laundry showing up again. Uh, but also sort of like connecting this back with Milkman number one. I actually think that the notes don't talk about these stories, right? No, Mine they don't. don't, which is very frustrating. <laughs> yeah. So what I read, and I couldn't really get a good source on this, is that both of these short stories are excerpts from a started novel that was ultimately unfinished. Mm. Um, And from what I can tell, like putting them both side by side, uh, like I can I can suss out maybe or i can like divine right using my stephen king telepathy my my stephen king communion powers um i detect here a uh, kind of uh latent uh ideas that we're going to see come forth more fully in needful things right this mysterious figure yes. who uh goes through a town and like sort of ruins people's lives because it's it, it's weirdly implied like uh in in big wheels in this story there's like a mention of like uh, uh two teenagers who were murdered in a lover's lane like a couple years before and it's strongly implied that the milkman did that too yes uh, yeah yeah so he's kind of this weird like randall flaggish character uh but the whole tone or feel of all of this is very bachmany in terms of like the dirt baggishness and in that way actually and i don't don't know exactly what it is that's doing this um but i detect some amount of the regulators in this oh do you, yeah I, this kind of like uh cyclical thing that just kind of comes and people have to deal with it yeah right it's like it's this it's the oh it's it's because it's the way we get like this long description uh in your story of the street that the milkman drives down and all the people who live there uh right. and uh in, in these guys in my story like live in that same town and yeah it's exactly this kind of like here is everyday america that is like sort of implicitly underpinned or being overlaid with some something like much weirder and more malevolent and nefarious in in a way that feels supernatural right like mm-hmm. the fact that this mil- milkman like does his rounds every day uh in implicitly then is maybe killing people every day but that's not how other people live in this town right they're like the dudes in this story are just like living their lives being like regular everyday guys but then they've got this weird sort of demonic randall flaggish kind of milkman uh haunting the periphery uh yeah and you know uh, another uh work that's gonna run around this is it oh yeah 
Mm-hmm. Right. That, that's a similar kind of thing, too. Of Like there's a fantastical, uh, malevolent underpinning of just regular everyday things. And like when people die, it is not just the evil that men do. It is this other thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I was looking at the end, uh, you know, because you were saying about this. It makes a lot of sense to me that this would be some sort of like beginning of the structure of a novel or like some pieces of a novel. Mm-hmm. So uh, Morning Deliveries, Milkman number one in, in the back of my book uh, is not published anywhere else. Mm-hmm. It's this is its first publication, and it's uh, so that lines up. And then Big Wheels, a tale of the laundry game, first appeared in New Terrors Two, edited by Ramsey Campbell, oh. um, nineteen eighty two. So so it this is in the you know this period of Stephen King. I think all of these, other than the ones that we have flagged, I think they're all from the eighties. Yeah. Um. The Mist is 1980. The Monkey is 1980. Kane Rose Up is originally, as you were saying, 68 and then redone in 85 here. Um, but I think other than that and The Reaper's Image is 69. Nona nice. is 78. <laughs> Great. Uh, let me, let me, let's get that clean. Okay. <clears throat> the Reaper's Image was 69. Nice. And uh, Nona, 78. So most of these are... The reason I'm going through that and checking is that most of these stories are from the time period that we're talking about, this kind of transitional period for King as he's becoming Stephen King, mm-hmm. uh, even more than he is now. Um, and during the, what we've you know kind of called the horror or fantastical turn mm-hmm. um, away from science fiction into something else, mm-hmm. um, you know, into his like own little thing. Mm-hmm. Um you know, where, St- where a Stephen King novel is its own discrete genre at this point. But um, I don't know. Do you think, wait, have you said if you think the Tale of the Laundry game is good or not? Uh, I haven't, and I'm going to say no. It, it also has a similar kind of vibe to like a tone piece. It's, yeah. it's very, uh, I think it's it's like morning deliveries in that it's like, these are just some guys out being dudes and they're not great. Yeah. You know, the whole story is like leveraged on the dude driving the the vehicle is leaning on the mechanic mm-hmm. in a kind of threatening way to like, uh, uh, what do you call it? To inspect his car? To yeah, give to give him his inspection. vehicle inspection sticker. Yeah. Yeah. Right. It's like this very just normal day kind of thing that's inflected with all this like small town horror stuff. But and I th- but I think you're right to feel needful things in this to feel Tommy knockers in this. Mm-hmm. Right. Like. Um, the, the, the town that is on the edge of something bad happening to it. And I guess that's also happening in it as well. Although that's a town where on the edge of something bad that doesn't do anything to it. Mm -hmm. You know, it's still just bad. Um, at least Tommy knockers is, you know, um, spoilers, but, um, the town is affected in a big way. Mm -hmm. Um, next story, grandma (laughs) by, uh, uh, (laughs) Stephen King. Um, once in summary, a child is at home with their grandmother who dies. And in the dying, through many meta reflections, the child recognizes that their grandmother was Carrie's mom <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and making deals with an outer god. Mm-hmm. The king thing. Grandma is Carrie's mom. <laughs> uh you know the 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 nice religious woman, or not nice religious, but the overly religious woman who alienates many people around her. But we know at the heart of things that actually her religion is not like you know just uh, evangelicalism, but is some other thing. She's a witch. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, is it any good? No. 
I really did not enjoy reading this story. Um, this concept is cool and is good as one paragraph in Carrie, mm-hmm. uh, and not good as a full story. I, I let me give it a little bit more than that. The concept here is very neat. She is an old woman who ha- was involved in like dark rituals in order to have her children, mm-hmm. and those dark rituals are still in there, and she is undergoing the advanced stages of dementia, mm-hmm. and so we'll start just doing dark magic shit yeah uh you know unknowingly and people have to like control for that that is such a cool idea for a story yeah it's really good the story itself is just not great he again i think king is trying to do way too much in the story Mm -hmm. um and he's trying to do that thing that we were talking about before of like this is a story about intergenerational trauma and responsibility you know Mm -hmm. that's one line and it's a story about a, a, a witch who has dementia, mm-hmm. right? And those things, when they cross, are supposed to produce some sort of epiphanic moment that mutually enforces, you know, some themes or ideas. And then they don't. Yeah. like uh, They don't do, do mean, anything. I mean, she she possesses the little boy, and then he's like, ha, 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 now I can torture my shitty older brother. Well, so that's the question for you. Does she possess him or does he just learn magic shit? That's I mean, that's the question. Yeah, I don't really know. Uh, but to your point, I think the coolest thing about this story is uh, what you said, where like uh, her kids like have the like when uh, when uh, mom starts like saying certain words, you have to like shut her up because if she finishes what she's saying, something bad is going to happen. Yeah, someone's gonna die, yeah. or like that's rad. Yeah, uh, what a, what a cool uh, you know way of thinking through these things, and you could tell a really interesting story around that. And I'm sure people have this. This feels way too like fertile of an idea that other people haven't taken a swing at it. Mm-hmm. Um, but this this ain't it, yeah. unfortunately. Yeah, no, I agree. It's a it's a story that's overfull, uh, sort of distracted from its own kind of most interesting ideas. Mm. And it ends like creep show. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, like it ends like a Twilight Zone or like a like an EC comics. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like why why? <laughs> why did that happen? Uh it actively detracts from the cool parts of the story. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know. Uh The Ballad of the Flexible Bullet. An editor tells his friends about the time he was working fiction for a New Yorker-like magazine and carried on a long correspondence with a talented young writer who was also convinced that a tiny alien creature called a fornit lived inside his typewriter, a delusion which soon spreads to the editor himself, unless it's not a delusion at all. Um... So this, I mean, what's our king thing here? Uh, threading throughout this collection, like this is yet another story that is about someone telling other people a story. Um, and uh, is it any good? No, I think this is too long. Uh, I, I gotta go against you here. I'm an absolute freak for the story. I think the story okay. is rad. Okay. I think I think there there are cool parts here. Uh, there we, we can talk about them in the deathmatch uh, thing. Uh, it's interesting that we uh, di- have done this with like the two longest stories, um, mm-hmm. but uh, we'll 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 talk about it uh, in in deathmatch at the end after you have told us about the reach. Uh, a woman who lives on an island uh, starts hearing voices. 
to get her to come across the Reach, which is the gap between the island and the mainland, which she has never crossed before. Mm-hmm. She is old, and she crosses it, and she dies. Mm-hmm. The end. King thing. Locals, mm-hmm. you know, the attachment to place. You know, this is Judd Crandall redone. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, this idea of like the, 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 the ghostly presence of the people of your past as you are aging mm-hmm. likes to dig into that, uh, quite often. Uh, is it any good? Sure. That's fine. Yeah. I think it's like a, like a perfect five out of 10. Mm-hmm. I wasn't mad. I read it, but it's not, I wouldn't say, Hey, everybody's got to go out and read this thing. Yeah. No, I agree. It's, it's like, it's like, oh, that's pretty good. And it's like, you know, good kind of like. Local main literature, this idea of like being on the island, being from this place. What does that mean? What does it do? How does it inform your history? So on and so forth. Yeah. And I think this is probably the best place. This is a weird thing to bring up, but, but because Stephen King goes to this well so often, I think it's a notable thing. So she has a son named Alden uh-huh. who has some sort of intellectual disability. Yes. And, you know, he sings in church and does all of this kind of stuff. And Stephen King is notably terrible around this kind of thing. Right. Like anyone with it, you know, it's Tom, it's Tom Cullen. He just writes Tom Cullen over and over again. Mm -hmm. And this is a character with intellectual disability who is not Tom Cullen. Mm -hmm. And that's actually notable. Yeah. And, and part of what's going on here in the story is she's a little bit worried about, um, what's he going to do after she's gone, Mm -hmm. but also not too worried about him. Well, he, yeah, he's, uh, he's actually a lot more sort of independently functional than she gives him credit for. Right. Right. Um, and I don't know. It's just it feels like a weird aberration mm-hmm. in King that oh yeah, like he's he has written uh, a a character with with a disability that is not just immediately the same character he's written over and over again, but he will never come back to this again, as far as I know. Yeah, like the gradation of character that he gives to somebody uh, with an intellectual disability, it, it, you know, he can barely get to two dimensions there. Mm-hmm. This is like a full three dimensional character, mm-hmm. right? Like Alden has like thoughts and feelings and desires. And is like a, a full human as much as a, someone can be a full human in a sor- short story. Mm-hmm. And that is not the case basically anywhere else. Yeah. Um, it's it's pretty notable, I think. Mm-hmm. That's it. All right. So uh, Deathmatch. Uh, we got to return to the question of the mist. <laughs> like, can we do the Ballad of the Flexible Bullet okay, first? Okay, yeah. Let's save, the, like it's gonna save be the big one for last. Let's do Ballad of the yeah. Flexible Bullet. Yeah. I like these four nits. It's a good idea. Okay, here, Here's my here's my four, okay? My four nits. <laughs> no, here here are the things uh that I like about it. Uh I this is the only place for me in this collection where the story within a story within a story thing really works really well. Mm-hmm. And because it, it because it's because it keeps going deeper and deeper. Mm-hmm. Like it's the editor telling the story. Or actually it's like someone telling us a story about the editor telling the story. And then he starts telling stories that other people told him. Yes. And King can hold it all together in this in a way that some of these other places he can't. I think that's I think it's a really impressive short story in that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, two, it's a bourgeois novel short story, you know, that with all this interiority to it, you know, about the middle class and the upper middle class that actually has some stakes to it. And that story pans out mm-hmm. in the thing, right? Like. Uh, it's about the end of of uh, the short story magazine, yeah, and it actually does a pretty good job of like talking through that and what the professional worries are there. Um, three, there are uh, there's a Stephen King in there, 
like like the writer character mm-hmm. is is just a Steve, yes. right? Mm-hmm. Uh, he's so, he's a you know a new upstart writer who has had a, a successful novel and is worried about will his second novel do as well? Mm-hmm. And so all of this kind of worry about creativity is inflected through that that narrative. And like I've been saying for all these other stories, where like one there are two narrative threads and they're supposed to cross one another and enliven each other, and that hasn't happened anywhere else. It actually happens in this story. Like the question of paranoia and the question of the fornit, you know, this gremlin that lives in the typewriter, being this, uh, 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 I don't know, engine for creativity, the thing that might make it work, that actually works for me in the story. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think it's a useful metaphor for thinking about creativity and like what is the creative juice? Where does it come from? Mm-hmm. Uh, additionally, fornits are cool. <laughs> and also additionally, uh, this whole like story about this guy's like deeply um, hallucinogenic life, right? Where he's like, he believes in the Fornits and everyone has to like just go along with it because otherwise the, you know, the repercussions would be awful. Mm-hmm. And truly when it breaks down, he kills everyone. Yeah. Um, that to me is very compelling. I find that is, to be an interesting story. It feels very real mm-hmm. uh, that his, that, that it is better to go along with his delusions because ultimately, what anything else would uh, be too disruptive. That's a very human thing. Mm-hmm. Th- these are all my re- uh, reasons for loving it. Okay. Oh, that's it? That's it. Okay. Uh, well, uh, my main reason for not liking it is I think it's too long. It's very long. <laughs> like it's a, But it's the only one in here that I think earns its length. Really? Okay. Yeah. Well, yeah. That's. I mean, you know. You don't have to agree. Yeah. No, I, uh, I I would say that all of the things that you're saying are things that I also like agree with. I just in, in the final analysis, uh, the length of this detracts from it for me in a way that uh, maybe I would feel differently if I reread this like at this moment or if I waited a year mm-hmm. and reread it again because it is coming at kind of the end of this collection. So maybe I was feeling a little strained. Right. Um. Uh. But just in terms of. Uh, it, it is really interesting the way like the things that are all being folded in here, because we've got like the the mid-century literary fiction magazine and that you're talking about that King is kind of like lamenting the death of. But then like folded in underneath that in this like perfectly wonderful key way is this uh, very pulpy idea of the Fornets who are who sound and are described like something out of a golden age of science fiction magazine um, and seems to me at least to evoke kind of like uh, what was called the quote unquote shaver mystery uh, where you know you had these science fiction pulp magazines where people uh, editors would were publishing uh, the maybe like paranoid schizophrenic delusions of a man named Richard Sharp Shaver who believed that there were like uh, horrible monsters living inside the hollow earth that were going to kidnap like human women. Um, all of this stuff seems to be getting echoed up here into like what is essentially the story is kind of this like long meditation on like success failure and madness like all of and creativity i guess that's the fourth term all of these things linked up together actually another interesting stephen king thing here that i mentioned because it's also a michael lutz thing uh is that this story name drops uh ross lockridge jr who is uh the author of a uh one big novel uh called rain tree county 
that is sort of like uh, a Ulysses-like mythologized history of a county in eastern Indiana. Um, this is why it's a Michael thing. Uh, mm-hmm. It seems to me like it got made into a movie in like the 40s or 50s. Uh, and that is like the most people have heard about it. Lockridge got super famous after this book. It was like a big success, but it also had a lot of criticisms. Um, and then he was like very deeply depressive and then completed suicide. So it's the only thing that he wrote. Um, and the two people on Earth who seem to care about Ross Lockridge Jr. are me and Stephen King, because this is not the first time that Steve has brought this book up, um, specifically also in the context of like the story of its author. Uh, the third person is maybe a, a person who I think might be uh, uh, Lockridge's like grandchild who maintains or maintained a website trying to bring attention to this book um Mm. but just a just an interesting little thing where i don't know like like i said i'm i am basically the only person i know who has read about that book or cares anything about it and apparently steve is also on that uh boat with me um yeah there's something really cool going on around both of those things right that the the structure of this short story that, that I didn't really think about, but that you, what you just said really brought up for me is that the structure of the short story is implying that beneath, and this is a very uh, dance macabre, Steve King thing to say, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, beneath the literary short story, there's a little gremlin uh-huh. <laughs> who affords our capability to do those things. Mm-hmm. And that little gremlin's got a lot going on with it. Mm-hmm. You like steak crumbs. <laughs> Right. Yeah. Like that. There is a pulpy genre thing that is the engine for story, and that ultimately that thing erupting out into the world is what displaces the Saturday Evening Post. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, which mm-hmm. is Stephen King's career itself. Yes. Right. Like Stephen King's emergent career as a writer is the thing that displaces the Saturday Evening Post. I mean, not literally. It's not just him, but it is. You know, this post nineteen seventies explosion of popular genre work uh, that dominates the literary marketplace, right? From the legal thriller to the Crichton style, whatever that is, right? The airport book to Stephen King, like all of those things ultimately push out, you know, whatever John Updike (laughs) who shows up in the story, right? Yes, he does. (laughs) Right. Uh, So it's very literalized here. So Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, I don't know. I like it. I think it's good. Yeah. Well, I I'm, I'm, more pleased with it now than I was uh, when I gave my initial estimation. So that's what talking through things does for you. It's true. And I also think I've read this book uh, more slowly than you did. Mm -hmm. Like, I think you read this pretty quickly all in all in a whack. And I, due to my schedule, had to read like one or two stories and then put it down for a couple days and one or two stories and put it down for a couple days. Mm -hmm. And that might have improved my, you know, uh, pacing. (laughs) Yeah, tolerance for an overlong story. Mm -hmm. Speaking of overlong stories, The Mist. This is just its own book. Yes. (laughs) And should have been. Mm -hmm. Uh, Now to admit to my trollishness from the beginning, I don't actually really dislike this story. um, But I do think that, yeah, it's like, it is a very simple story. It is effective for what it does. uh, But ultimately, I don't think I find it as impressive or sort of like gripping as a lot of people do. I think the trick has worn off on it. Maybe that's it. Yeah. Right. Like, I I mean, reading this for the first time and certainly reading it like multiple times growing up, I've read the story many times. 
Um, and I would say I've been flatly impressed with it. And then this time I was less impressed with it. Although I still think it is very good. I, I don't think I would say it is a, a bad story by any measure. But it plays pretty fast and loose with some things and is really just a blown up Twilight Zone episode. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, and the movie, which we are not doing for the bonus episode this uh, this time, but we will be doing at some point in the future as we begin to run out of stuff. It's just too easy to save, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, it actually does turn it into a Twilight Zone episode. Um, it the the yank it out from under you ending. Uh, if you don't know anything about it, I'm not going to spoil anything. But if you have seen the Mist film, you know what I'm talking about. It literally does the Twilight Zone riff at the end mm-hmm. um to kind of uh, pull the rug out from under the the viewer in a way that is uh i don't know pointlessly cruel mm-hmm. uh audaciously the, cruel <laughs> audaciously missing the point uh the fact that it's frank darabont is particularly bewildering mm-hmm. um but uh but you know I, i'm not gonna get too into it because of course we'll watch it uh, for a film at some point in a bonus episode, you can go to patreon.com slash ranged touch in order to uh, to get the bonus episodes for this uh, program. But in, in a general sense, in a general sense, I think it still works. But in the beat by beat, I agree with you. It, the, the sheen has worn off on it for me. Um, I don't think I want to read this too many more times in my life. Mm-hmm. This time I just had a we, we mentioned this uh, with with the raft. Um this time I just had a much uh, lower tolerance for the the Stephen King move of uh, we're two people like in a in a weird, surreal, like horrific situation. Uh, let's sneak off and have sex like that move. Well, it it feels mean in this story. Yeah, because he like <laughs> you want to say more about that? Well, well. So in the raft, uh, going back a little bit, right? It's also kind of mean there, right? They, they are um, pulled together by this awful situation, and for whatever reason, against all logic and form, they decide to have sex. And then the thing gets her hair, and he like throws her off the raft, and she's like consumed. It's, yeah. it's pretty, it's pretty rough, rough stuff. Um, the but this, uh, they they're trapped in the. Okay, so like the mist, the story. Big storm comes. They are trapped within a supermarket uh, with their bad neighbor. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like a man and his son. They leave his wife at home, mm-hmm. right? And there's some, I mean, some of Stephen King's, you, you got to give it to him. Uh, some of Stephen King's best writing here is like, you know, that's the last time I saw my wife again. You know, uh-huh. he draws this like idyllic image of like her. She's about to get, you know, go gardening. She's got her hat on and her gloves. And he can see the mist out on the lake and then they drive away, right? Mm-hmm. Like, there, there is there is some pointed finitude to the story that I think is, you know, maybe not unmatched, but certainly King hitting on all cylinders. Mm-hmm. Um, but so that happens, and they go, and then like all this bad stuff happens, right? So they go in the the uh, the grocery store, they close the doors. There's monsters outside. There's all this like conflict that's going on. It becomes a kind of like locked room thing, you mm-hmm. know. Uh, the pressure is boiling over. There's this religious lady uh, who's like inventing a cult because they're seeing people just die in this irrational mist or hearing them die. They don't see much. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they're invaded by a big bug mm-hmm. uh, or a big creature, all kinds of stuff like that. And then in the midst of all this like pain and horror, it's just this random woman that, that the main character meets mm-hmm. and she's so hot mm-hmm. that they got to fuck. And she's, she's like, got her so own scary. husband at home who she right. doesn't know about. And so <laughs> it's this moment of comforting each other. Right, right. 
and like oh whatever okay fine uh people do all kinds of stuff in the world mm-hmm. but the uh it does not match the tone of the rest of the story really um and it, you know, the the problem for me is not like that they have sex the the problem is that it is such a melancholy story about what it, and it's so mysterious what's happening in the world that them having sex in like kind of a formal way it closes the door on the rest of the world mm-hmm. it, it it's like uh the 10th episode of the, the you know the TV show <laughs> uh, after they've been trapped for 30 days that's when this should happen uh-huh. not hour 14 yeah um it, it it's trying to rush the pacing of like a progression of events in a way that is like deeply weird and bad. It feels like Stephen King just want to get some sex in there. Yeah. It feels uh, like what, what uh, I think one of the reasons it's like totally weird is that it feels like something out of an adventure story where it's yes, like, I, and I think, yeah, yeah, a much more sort of positive adventure story where like, Oh, we met each other. We're on this adventure. And now like, because you know, we're both like, I'm the main character and you're like, the woman I met, we're going to have sex, right? Yeah. Um, except the the context here just makes it all feel weird and hollow. It doesn't know what kind of story it is. And I think if there's like one thing to knock against it, it doesn't know if it is a science fiction horror story or like you just said, like a classic adventure tale. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, it, and it bounces back and forth between those things. And I think for me at the end of the day, the bleak melancholy horror story overwhelms the other thing Mm -hmm. um but the other thing is in there and is bad like reading it this time everything to do with mrs carmody is is so boring and so pointless and so like over determined right Mm -hmm. the minute that she shows up and is like oh yeah it's judgment day it's like all right well like we got to go through this formality Mm -hmm. the story is so much better and like whatever that's perfectly like believable i could believe that that would occur and i can imagine if you're writing this during the reagan years and you're writing this during uh yet another resuscitation of like hard right-wing evangelicalism in the world uh or you know in the united states in particular um and that driving the bus of of national politics you know we're in another era of that now Mm -hmm. then that uh then you might want to get that in like i i understand why mrs carmody is here and what the function is of all of that, but it is such like a pat thing. Um, and it feels like he needs it as a lever to get them out of the the grocery store. Cause otherwise they could live here forever. Yeah. Um, except there's 5,000 other ways you could do this, right? You could just have something break through the window. Yeah. Right. Like it, it feels like King it, it like, you know, this is a, a lot of like lines of assumption, but it, it feels to me as if King feels that he has written himself into a corner because he's made the fortifiable <laughs> grocery store. And so he must have a threat from within to drive people without. Here's another take and on that. Oh, continue. Please, that. please. Okay. Yeah. So uh, something does break through the front of the grocery <laughs> yeah. store at one point, like, you right. know, to, to your uh, uh, benefit. Um, I think one of the reasons this happens in the way it does is because King is trying to rewrite Lord of the Flies, which is a text that he is fixated on. And this idea of, uh, you know, people put into a, uh, you know, uh, extreme situation and the uh, how they like, quote unquote, devolve. Right. Um, right. 
because they, Lord of the Flies is going to come up again and again and again as we continue out throughout this show. Uh, but I think he is so set on the idea of being like, oh, these people have been trapped in a place together. Well, we need to show like the social breakdown and that needs to be the driver because that's the kind of story that I'm telling. Uh, and so, you know, we get Mrs. Carmody just like reinventing the the cult that the boys make uh, in, in Lord of the Flies. Yeah, I think that's right. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, yeah, so I don't know. I just, it just doesn't work. But the horror parts of it for me, right? The tentacle coming out from under the... Um, the loading bay. The loading bay. Uh, that's good. That's It's so good. And it like it's got suckers with... Uh, like blades on their yeah. their little mouths, right? But they're like little lamprey mouths, uh-huh. and so as soon as they like touch you, they like rip your skin off. I don't know. This has got some of the best like Stephen King writing visceral gore in it. Yeah, uh, that uh, that he's you know up, up up till this point that he's done. There's really before a skeleton uh, uh, a skeleton crew. There's not that much gore in Stephen King. No, no, which really. I didn't really think about until reading this. Mm-hmm. You know, there's violence and there's bad stuff that happens and there's, of course, you know, we know we've read the stuff, but I wouldn't say there's like a huge amount of just like guts and gore and flesh being ripped off of people and things like that. When they happen, it's sometimes it's pretty sanitized, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, but often the action just doesn't revolve around that. Right. Mm -hmm. Like it's not about going. It's going for the gross out, but in a different way often. Uh huh. Yeah, you very rarely see the scene of violence. You'll often see the aftermath. Uh, but yeah. The Mist is a story where you like you are seeing people flayed alive. Yeah, like, uh, you know, like Christine killing people. That is often like, you know, he cuts from exactly as you're saying. He cuts from the violence. But at this point, we're really getting. And I think maybe that's a shift that's happening here in the early 80s that we should pay attention to because it is going to start with a gratuitous, nightmarish bit of violence, mm-hmm. right? That like. From the time I read that, I know exactly where I was when I read it for the first time and started it. I was in social studies class in the sixth grade. Why do you ask, maybe you're asking, why was I reading it in social studies class in the sixth grade? I didn't get a very good education (laughs) (laughs) when I was growing up, and uh, I just read books all the time. Yep. Um, (laughs) But uh, instead of doing things like social studies class, and no one did anything about it. But, uh, you know, it, it is a shocking bit of violence, but and it's, it seems right of a piece with The Mist, you mm-hmm. know, which obviously was written earlier, um, but has its final form here. Um, you know, he's editing this and, and kind of rewriting pieces of it because The Mist that is here is not necessarily the exact same mist that was published before. Right. It's a bit edited and changed. Uh, but yeah, that that violence of the loading bay dock and the, and the kid dying, the science fiction maneuver here is really cool to me. That that what is it, the Arrowhead project? Yeah, I love that moment where uh, there are two uh, guys from the army base or whatever where they're doing the, this uh, Arrowhead project. Um, there are two guys in the supermarket, and they're just kind of background characters who are mentioned. And then, you know, a quarter of the way into the story, one of the other characters uh, goes up to the protagonist and mentions like he's found their corpses in the back where they've hung themselves to, you know, like show that like whatever happened, like they were in on it. They knew that there was some sort of experiment being done uh, that has resulted in this. Yeah. And, And that they know that there's no reason to bother. Yeah. You know, like there's something really bleak about it. And 
it, the the restraint here is really interesting to me, and I I really wonder about when he makes these decisions and when he doesn't, because the shop could be here, right? Mm-hmm. And correct me if I'm wrong. We haven't read it yet, so uh, you know maybe maybe I am wrong. Let me know. But I isn't the shop written into the stand remix? I think it is. Right, so as like the people who are making the yeah the trips the, the, the virus yeah Captain Trips, um, and so it's interesting to me that this would be so easy because there's all this like shadowy government stuff here, right? Mm-hmm. It would so be so easy to drop the shop into the story, just one sentence, just you know naming something, mm-hmm. and then he doesn't, and that's such a interesting wrinkle to me. Mm-hmm. When is the shop involved, and when is it not? <laughs> this ultimate kind of you know I don't know decision to be made, but. Um, there's that. Oh, the spiders are cool mm-hmm. with their acid webbing. Yeah, yes, they they shoot webbing that people can't get away from, and it's also acid. <laughs> and they like get you immediately, and they start like you know wrapping you up. I don't know. There's just the image, the the giant crabs, uh huh, and the like utter disrespect for human life that is in the story. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's very the blobby, mm-hmm. but like the 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 ni- late eighties, early nineties one that's going to come out after this. Weirdly enough, um, yeah, where it's just like disgusting, and, which like, is uh, a Darabont film. Yeah, maybe we should do that as a bonus episode. Yeah, just because I like watching it. That's a cool movie. It is. Uh, but uh, but you know, like so, the guy who like shoots Mrs. Carmody, like the guy he, who is the uh, oh, assistant manager yeah. or whatever. Mm-hmm. And then they escape, and then the crab gets him and just snips him in half. Yes. And that's, like, such a Stephen King, like, I mean, you know, end of Salem's lot. Uh, here's this guy yeah. who's been nothing but a good, helpful, supporting character, and he is dead. Yeah. I just, I, they're, they're just pieces here that are, like, Apex Steve for me, right? And I'm willing to gloss over a lot or, like, read through a lot to get through those, like, high watermark parts. Um, and, uh, oh, there, you know, there's also not to just keep talking about highlights, but, you know, I would say big, some of the biggest Stephen King moments for me, like top 10 moments, period, maybe top 20, top 20 moments, uh, happen back to back in this book, uh, toward the end. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, maybe three and, and one is the third one is not like of all time, but like had an impact on me, certainly high. So two big moments. Number one. They see the big thing come over them on the overpass, Mm -hmm. and it's got, like, the other creatures hanging off of it, Mm -hmm. and you're like, oh, shit. Like, this is a whole ecology of stuff. Mm -hmm. That's so good. That's super good. It's so great. And then the one, I think, that's right before that, where they uh, are trying to get over the log uh, to go back and see if his wife is alive, Mm -hmm. and, you know, there's mist everywhere. And he rolls down the window just slightly, and he can hear all the monsters in in the woods mm-hmm. crashing around and doing stuff. Uh, like, that to me is, like, this ultimate statement of bleakness. Um, like, the, the fact that the film has to, like, build on that or can't just use this as a moment of, like, utter melancholy and, and you know, nightmarishness is a weakness of the film. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but, but those two things, like just top tier King for me and then impactful moments for me is the end of it where it's just like, yeah, they didn't, because I remember as a child reading this and, uh, being like, 
well, I wonder how they're going to get out of this one, mm-hmm. right? Me, my Bruce Colville reading self, I was like, I got, they're going to get out of this, but it looks like there's not very many pages left in the story. I wonder how they're going to do it. And they don't. <laughs> yeah, they just keep driving, and they are the only people that they have seen. Yes. Yeah. Hartford and Hope. Yeah. They, they hear, they maybe, they're not entirely sure, they maybe yeah, hear a maybe. voice on the radio telling them to go to Hartford, Connecticut. Yeah. Uh, anyway so i don't know it's just got so many like all-star steve king moments for me that i just can't i can't say it's bad yeah but there are some pieces that drag and i would love to take like a big editor's marker to the story mm-hmm. i think it'd make it better yeah no and like i said i was i was just being mischievous i was i was uh mm-hmm. trying to get us to buying us some time to discuss this more than we might have otherwise because I do like this story. I do think that there are huge, like the 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 whole ecology of the creatures is so good to me. Uh, and it's this is a fact that I've mentioned before on this show, um, but it seems to blow people's minds every time. Um, it is so interesting to me that like this is what inspires Half Life and the way that like all of the monster uh, interactions in Half Life work. Right, we're we're entering the age of the video game. Stephen King has mentioned computers now. He's talked about Pong at least once, and now he is going to be inspiring video games. Not just the text adventure based on this very story, but you know one of the the uh, big pivot points in first person shooters that's going to show up in you know another fifteen years or something. I don't remember which story it is, but I folded the page down and I can't find it. Oh, you know what? Hold on. Let me let me look here. There's a really weird thing that happens. Um, hold on. Let me see if it's got a hyphen. Yeah, Pac-Man shows up in this book. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Did that's you right. That? Um, when does that happen? When is that mentioned? Oh, it's in the, it's in the the raft. <laughs> yes, it's such a weird thing. Uh, uh. Uh, oh, it's when they're like getting onto the raft after they see the the you know the goop. Yes. Uh, Randy looked to the side again and saw the thing fold itself around the raft square corner. For a moment, it looked like a Pac-Man image <laughs> with its mouth open to eat electronic cookies. <laughs> then it slipped all the way around the co- the comer. I don't know, and began to slide along the raft. One of its edges now straight. Oh, oh, corner. Yeah. Sorry, there's a it's a transcription error. Uh, and began to slide along the raft. One of its edges now straight. It looked like a Pac-Man. Yep. That was an image that Stephen King thought everyone's going to get yeah, that. That's people are going to love this. They're going to know exactly what I mean. Timeless writing. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I, yeah, guess it was the right call. Yeah. I, I know what it looked like. I know what Pac-Man looks like. Yeah. And Pac-Man does eat cookies and that thing eats them. So mm-hmm. not to brag, but I know what Pac-Man looks like. <laughs> Uh, you know, uh, tweet about this episode on social media. Here's a little thing at the end of the episode for you. If you're, if you're all the way here listening to it, and I know you are, uh, if you're here at the end, you should tweet about this. And if you know what Pac-Man looks like, brag about it a little bit. Mm -hmm. Link this episode and just say, I know what Pac-Man looks like. (laughs) Tell it, tell the world. Pac-Man pride. Knowing about, it's not Pac-Man pride. It's knowing about Pac-Man pride. And that's a key distinction. Because they're uh, presumably the person listening is not Pac-Man. Yeah. Although if you are, let us know. If you're Pac-Man, <laughs> reach out. <laughs> Come by for a bonus episode. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I guess that that wraps things up for us for the most part. Unless there was something else you wanted to add. I think that's it. What, what's your general impressions on this entire collection? 
like I said at the beginning, I think it's a really interesting collection because it has what I think is some of Stephen King's best writing. Um, mm-hmm. And then some of his, I mean, just some of the goofiest writing uh, much more like the highs are really, really high. The lows are like everything ends up kind of in the middle space, maybe is the way of saying it. Like a lot of these stories mm-hmm. I end up feeling are kind of mediocre. Um, but the things that are here that I think are good are really good. Yeah, I think this used to be uh, a um, uh, this used to be a book that I like recommended to people. Mm-hmm. I don't think I'm going to do that anymore. Oh, I just think I think uh, uh, Night Shift is better. Yeah, I, Night Shift definitely feels like the, the, this. I would say the biggest problem with most of the stories I have in this collection in Skeleton Crew is I get to the end and I'm like, what the hell was that? Like the, the, yeah. the there a lot of these stories end in kind of like and then it was over kind of moment uh, and I don't know what to do with them and in Night Shift at least like it's they're simpler stories uh but like I know what those stories are up to and I can judge that they have achieved their intended effect. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think weirdly enough, some of the other short story collections might be better. Mm-hmm. Uh, like the later ones, but we'll get to them when we get to them. Well, uh, Michael, what's the next book we're talking about? Oh, next month. Oh, we are going to be talking about the big book of the summer. Everyone, everyone always talks about it uh, uh, during the summer because it's a book about the summer and things happening during the summer. Uh, And that book is it. Yep. 1986. You got got it. You got it in your hands right now. I'm gonna get. It, I'm gonna take it off my shelf this very moment. It's been on my shelf the whole time. I'm gonna take it off. Uh, I actually have it sitting on my bedside table. Let me see if I can get. Can we get? Tell me if you hear this noise. <laughs> I'm sure your mic picked that up pretty well, but here's what Discord gave me. Nothing. That was. That was. Yeah. <laughs> I'm still doing it. Yeah, it sounds like you're like starting to blow a raspberry and then immediately stopping. Uh, no, people are getting it. <laughs> oh God, how many pages? Oh, oh no, mm-hmm. it's twelve hundred pages. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Why did we decide to do this? I... Why did we decide to do this show? I... <laughs> you're the one who pitched the idea to me. First of I'm all, I'm gonna have to read like two hundred pages a day. Yeah. Not really. Which is incidentally oh how God. I first read that book when I was 12. Uh, unfortunately, I have responsibilities and a life now. I think I've forgotten how to read. <laughs> I think reviewing this book uh, and looking at it, I think uh, mere moments ago, I forgot how to read. You might have to solo this one. Uh, guess how much I paid for this? my copy of the book? The $2? I don't know. <laughs> I paid two, exactly $2. You got it. Wow. Neat. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I go to the library sale every time they have a library sale locally twice a year. And since we started doing the show, I just go and oh, have I told you? Here's a great little bit of bonus uh, content for the end of the episode. Have I told you about the rush for Stephen King? Uh, no. Okay. So I go to this library sale twice a year and I've been going since I moved to you know this area. 
Um, it's great. You know, it's nice. Uh, people donate books to the library. They put it all in a, like a little storefront place that's like a, in a strip mall. And then twice a year they open it up and you just go and you buy books. And some of those books, you know, the maximum I would say for like a hardcover, um, you know, like coffee table books, like $5. Mm-hmm. Hardcovers are like two bucks. And then like most paperbacks are a dollar. Stephen King's a little bit pricier. Some of those are two or three dollars, but mm. in a general sense, you know, fairly cheap. And so I go and every time I just go with my list of King books I don't have yet. And then I just walk to the Stephen King table very casually and I just pick up what are, you know, the horror fantasy science fiction. It's all kind of one genre there. And then I just pick up whichever ones they have that I don't have. Mm-hmm. And I have assembled, I don't know, 60 percent of the Stephen King catalog that way. It's very efficient and uh, cost effective. Well, so, you know, we live in a rise and grind culture. Michael, did you know that? Uh, I've heard. I've heard. Okay. We're, we're all hustling out uh-huh. here. And uh, something has changed. I pay the extra $20 to be a friends of the library. Or friends of. <laughs> I'm not multiple people. I'm merely, I'm merely a friend. Are you account sharing at the library? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not. Uh, uh, my wife, my very brave wife, and I both have our own friend of the library card mm-hmm. because we like supporting the library. She uses the library quite often. I use uh, the library sale. I don't really go to the library all that often, uh, but she uses it. And we, you know, it's perfectly cool to spend $40 as a couple for the year to support the library. We're happy to do it. Mm-hmm. And, but, but the benefit you get from that is you get to go to the book sale, which happens uh, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and then Sunday until like noon or something. You get to go a day early. You get to go on Wednesday evening. You get to go mm-hmm. first. Mm-hmm. And so historically, that has mostly just been me and a bunch of uh, elderly people with not a lot to do. Mm-hmm. You know, there's coming, hanging out. They're, they're getting their mysteries or whatever. You know, there's a big mystery section, a lot of popular literature. Uh, and they come and they buy their books and you hear them all talking to one another. You know, they're all chatting about what books are good or not. It's a very wholesome, you know, uh, t- you know, regional city thing going on. Mm-hmm. This time, the last time I went, which is a couple months ago, where, where I believe I purchased it, there were several people who were there. And this is always the case, but it's never the majority of people. There are people who are just there with barcode scanners. And their thing is to buy books that are a dollar or two dollars and then flip them on Amazon or whatever. Yeah. Eight books. And there's a lot of old books. You know, a lot of these books come from people dying or leftovers from estate sales or whatever. So there, there are quite often some rare books that are worth money. I have, oh, I actually got it this last one, you know, the hardcover Bachman books uh-huh. thing. Yeah. I have an immaculate copy of it Ooh. Uh, because it was misplaced. It was like over in thrillers or something or in mysteries. Maybe I just happened to see it, but it is the hardcover with a, an immaculate, perfect um, uh, dust jacket Ooh, on it. Ooh, Nice. Oh yeah, so it, it's it's uh, unbelievable. It someone purchased it when it came out and put it on the shelf and it, it, in a dark room, and it has never been taken out. It's really cool. Um, I'm very glad to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, re- really cool stuff. And I paid two dollars for it or whatever. Oh yeah, and that's probably worth about fifty. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right. So sometimes you get some cool deals, and I've got several things that way. I got an, uh, like an uh, 1905 illustrated edition of uh, Alice in Wonderland and mm-hmm. Through the Looking Glass. For like five dollars, so there's some cool stuff that appears that's just in people's collections, and they donate to the library when they die. Um, anyway, so there are people who are going through, and they are, you know, they have a pretty fine eye, I guess, and they're scanning lots of these books to do it. And that's always a thing, but it's all just a handful of people, and they don't really get in the way. Although 
it's a little bit of a bummer, I guess, for those people to show up and take all the books that other people might read. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, they're just using it as their business, but also it still goes to the library anyway, so who could be that mad? Mm-hmm. The story's getting long. Yes. Sorry, let me finish. <laughs> let me let me end the story. I, look, I've just, I've taken uh, some hints from Steve here uh-huh. that what makes for a good story is for it to be way too long. <laughs> Uh, but this is just bonus content. People love when I tell a long story at the end of this. Everyone's always saying, tell more long stories. Tell more long stories. And here, this is for you. This is this is my flexible bullet. Uh-huh. By the way, we never said what the flexible bullet was, and we're not going to. <laughs> no, find out for yourself. <laughs> find out for yourself. The So I get there, and I go immediately to the Stephen King stuff because I got my little box, my little bag. So I'm going to go do it. I'm really here for that. And then everything else is kind of additional. I don't need that many more books in my life. Uh, so I'll do a browse. But I'm really here tactically for one thing, to get the books for just King things. I go there and there is a man in front of me who is running. Like straight up running. We're all single file walking into the thing. There's maybe 50 people total for this storefront space. We're all in the line. The door's open. We walk. This, this man is sprinting. He sprints to Stephen King and begins grabbing them like five at a time in the sense of like he is going to the Stephen King like books that are all the hardcovers that are all in a row. He has a box on the ground. He is grabbing them like an accordion and hefting them into his box. What? Like as many as one could grab. And so I get up there and I'm just like kind of going through them. Uh, you know, slowly, I'm just looking to see where I'm checking my list to see what I need because I don't know what I have. And he's like, act. I'm on the other side of the table from him. You know, these tables are aisles and they face one another. Mm-hmm. And uh, he's actively like grabbing books out from in front of me as I'm like looking at them. Yeah. And so then I have to get into a like speed contest with the Stephen King man in order to get the books I need for my podcast. <laughs> and so I, I then find myself in a situation in which I am rapidly grabbing Stephen King books <laughs> as quick as I possibly can. A thing I never would have imagined, because these things are not very valuable, for the most I know. part. Like, did you talk to this guy? Did you figure out what was going on? Did you no. say, sir, sir, excuse me, I have a podcast? <laughs> I didn't, but but I, but I my assumption is this, because I have looked, you know, to buy some of these books on, you know, whatever, eight books or whatever. We've we've done some pricing on that. You know, we bought the original stand mm-hmm. uh, uh, soft covers and stuff like that. Um, or I, I had to do that. I think I think you had one. But my my assumption is that at a dollar to two dollars each, if these all the hardcovers sell for, you know, a bit. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. They sell for um, like 10 bucks or so. And so my assumption is the profit margin is just so good yeah. that, you know, if you can get back there and grab them all and leave with 40 of them, because he probably left with 40 to 50 books, mm-hmm. um, many of which I needed, which was a huge bummer. Mm-hmm. But if you can do that, then you're making, you know, what, $250 or yeah, something, you I know, guess true. total, if you're making $5 in profit from each. And so... Like I get it, I guess, but it was it was an aggressive lifestyle choice, and uh, I, I just didn't. I never thought I'd be in that position where I was having to erase uh, another human being to grab as many Stephen King books as I could. Um, and then I walked over to the thriller thing and got by far the most valuable one, <laughs> yeah, um, of all of them. So I, you know, I felt like I I won that day. Um, this is also the library sale in which I've gotten the first edition paperback for uh, Graveyard Shift. Just uh-huh. happened to see or Night Shift. Just mm-hmm. happened to see it. Grab it. It's the one with the the hand on yep. it, which was cool. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and I've got another couple like first edition E King books that are neat um, that I just have around. And I think at some point I'm, I'm kind of grabbing them, not because I need them, but I think maybe like uh, as part of our uh, prepare to give or something like that in the future, we might want to auction them off or like, you know, offer them as a thing. Mm-hmm. So when I run into those kinds of things, I, I, I grab them because uh, I think we can use them for something cool later. Yeah. Worst case scenario, when Just Kings is uh, Just King Things is done, I'm going to create a big auction. Uh, of everything that we have purchased, because I'm never going to look at any of this again. <laughs> yeah. um, and it will be like the ultimate Stephen King collection for someone. So much like Steve uh, going into the 1980s, I don't have a good end to this story. Mm-hmm. It's just some stuff that happened. I talked to for, for about 15 minutes. I trust you're going to leave all of this in in the edit. Oh, certainly. Do you know what scares me? People who don't use their local library. So, uh, are you excited to talk about it? You're excited to, to get into that? People, people love it. Yeah, people do love it. I've started my reread, and I gotta say, I am interested and excited to talk about it. I mean, we'll see how I feel by the time I'm done with the damn thing. Uh, but even, even in kind of the first third-ish, which is where I am right now, um, there is just, I mean, uh, not to preview too much, I guess, but like, Steve really went for it. Uh, you know, I've read it, you know, in the past five years, I want to say, mm-hmm. and it does feel like it is probably the culmination and the uh, like overcoming, like the culmination of a lot of, of uh, ideas that King has had up until this point, And then the overcoming of some of the limitations, mm-hmm. you know, that in my mind, and we'll see if I, I think that's true when I actually sit down to read it, which I uh, haven't gotten it off my shelf will now begin to do. Um, but, but yeah, I've, I'm excited about it. How long is that episode going to be? God, who knows? We went three hours on the stand and it wasn't even the uncut version. We're going three hours now on this. Well, I, I, two and a half or two of those hours for me telling that story yeah. I just told. So, <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, I think, I think it's going to be a four hour rep. Yeah. I think we're going to have to get up in the middle of it and walk around yeah. and come back. Mm-hmm. Do a little Pennywise but, uh, dance. Yeah, we'll find out. If that sounds great to you, you can go to patreon.com slash range touch to support us <laughs> in our efforts to sit and stand and talk. So here's a question for you that I don't quite know the answer to. What is our bonus episode going to be for that? I was going to ask you the same question, honestly, because we've got two big options, um, which is the the 90s miniseries and then the more mm-hmm. recent film versions. Versions? Yeah. Because there's two movies Um, and sort of historically, one of the things we've tried to lean on is getting like the less known. And that usually means more recent version. But Mm -hmm. I feel like that's not true with it. Like Mm -hmm. the the different like because one like the it the the contemporary it films are like huge. Uh, They had like a huge marketing push and then kind of like a cultural presence. Um. And like the mini series is the one that is kind of like more impactful in terms of like generations. Like, I mean, the yeah, the, the mini series, if it did not exist, like the the movies we would have to invent. Yes, it. the the movies that were made recently would not exist either. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, well, so here, let me let me slice and dice. OK, uh, I, I think <laughs> we'll I watch the first half of one and then the second part of the other. <laughs> What I'm going to do is I'm going to cut them all together <laughs> and all the flashbacks will be from the miniseries and all the current day will be from the, the new one. Um, someone should do that, by the way. That would be a very interesting thing to put together. But no. So uh, just to give people a rundown right now, 
uh, on patreon.com slash range touch you can listen to us talking about the shining opera which we went to see and the day after we saw it we went to a podcast studio and recorded a big long episode that was us just talking about that that is the bonus episode that you can listen to right now for skeleton crew uh the uh next one will be it and we're going to do the mini series and here's why michael you ready for my logic okay so that's for June. Mm-hmm. June June novel, it. June uh, bonus episode, it miniseries, the classic miniseries. Mm-hmm. July is the novel, The Drawing of the Three. Oh. Which does not have a film associated mm-hmm. with it, obviously. Um, so that means that we can do the two it movies for July. Okay. I think that works. Right? Easy to do. Yeah. Uh, easy solution. And then we'll be back kind of on track with one-to-one with uh, August will be Misery. And, of course, we have the Misery film. We're also going to have a guest for that episode. It's going to be exciting. Uh, and then Tommy Knockers has a miniseries that we'll do there. The Dark Half has a film that we can do there. And then for the Stand Complete and Uncut, we can watch the new Stand mm-hmm. uh, thing. And then Four Past Midnight, The Langoliers. Oh, boy. Oh, yes. Yes, 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 yes. Langoliers. What, what a wild. Oh, my God. I can't wait. <laughs> It's only six months away. <laughs> We're going to be doing this the rest of our lives. <laughs> We're doing it for oh, Steve. Oh, my God. Look, looking at this list, just it fills me. We're not even halfway. No, we're not. Not at all. Let's see. One, two, three, four. We have four full years after this year is complete. Uh-huh. The show is currently scheduled into mid-2027. Yep. Yep. Wow. <laughs> There are going to be people who's like, okay, this is going to be wild. Are you ready for this? Here's the thing to think about. <laughs> sure, let's keep talking. Let's just keep talking. But, you know, people love it. Mm-hmm. There are going to be people who have children who, when they were little kids, listened to their parents listen to the show, who will then grow up to be Stephen King teens while the show's still going. Is, is that not shocking to you? You're all my sons. <laughs> or, or daughters, or neithers, <laughs> or both. My little readers. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, there are going to be people who don't see the end, of, who do, will not hear the end of this podcast. Mm. One of us might not. We could die. Yeah. Have you thought about that? I think about that constantly. I've started doing 50 push-ups a day just to make sure we can get through this. <laughs> I'm aging. <laughs> You're older than I am. You're aging. Yeah. <laughs> I was just talking to, uh, you know, a uh, sometimes collaborator, uh, collaborator of ours the other day, or, you know, Range Touch uh, affiliate. He turned 40 recently. <gasps> I know. It's not Danny. Oh, okay. It, we all know Danny's 22. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, but it's just wild. And here's the, here's the even more nightmarish thing. Stephen King is probably going to die before we're done, right? I. It's not outside the realm of possibility, yeah. The question is, do we meet him in person before? <laughs> I hope not. <laughs> I hope we don't. He seems neat and all, but that's not the relation. Like, if you asked me, uh, would I want to meet some people who worked on Baldur's Gate? Sure. Uh-huh. Would I want to meet some people who worked on Fallout games? Sure. Would I want to meet Andrew Hussey? Maybe. I'm not sure on that mm-hmm. one, but Maybe. Do I want to meet Stephen King? No. Not even a little. Not even a teensy bit. Which is kind of wild to think about. 
like many things I've just said that are, are, are stark and depressing and odd. But anyway, <laughs> that's the end of this episode. I hope I've left you all with something to think about. <laughs> Goodbye, everybody. Goodbye, <laughs> everybody.